Mic check, Danny, one, two. Georgie, go ahead. Uh, Mic check, Georgie, one, two. Mic check, Danny, one, two. Georgie, go ahead. Mic check, Georgie, one, two. Okay, we are live. Thank you guys so much uh, for joining us on a Saturday night. Sincere appreciation. Georgie and I are just shooting the shit. And uh, unfortunately, things kind of got messed up yesterday, but uh, Georgie is so gracious joining us tonight and making up the show. So how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for uh, inviting me again. You know, I uh, have two small children, so something unexpected came up yesterday and uh, I couldn't make it, but uh, (laughs) I... Uh, clear the schedule for tonight. I appreciate it because the show would not be the same without you. Originally, we were going to have Nicholas Simpson on the show, and he had a conflict tonight. And so I I'm, think we're going to do a show with him tomorrow, and it's just going to be me and him. Uh, but And then uh, just to clarify what I talked about last week of stopping <laughs> to doing the shows in November and December, a lot of people, I guess, I don't know how it got, I guess that, the way I described it was a little bit confusing, <laughs> but people were thinking we were stopping doing to uh, not doing them permanently. Uh, people were thinking that I had some desired outcome that I wanted to stop the show, but it's not any of that. I just, I won't have a computer uh, after the 12th. And so that is why we're, we're taking a break. And if I get a computer sooner in November and December and Georgie is available, 
we'll we'll, we'll start things up quickly. And, and it just I'm giving that leeway time to get the show started because I mean I can't do the show without a computer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so that is that. Um, Georgia, I've been getting constant email about your experiments. So do you want, if there's any update, maybe we should talk about that first. Yeah. And actually it's tied to, there's a second experiment that's about to start and it's tied to one of the studies on the blog. Uh, the one that says DHT may treat prostate cancer. Estrogen strongly promotes it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you look at that study, it was do you, basically. Do you want to go, in, go into it right now? Uh, yeah. I mean, cause, cause it's related to, to, to the experiments. <laughs> so there is one experiment that's ongoing in Bulgaria right now. It's already in progress, um, and it's basically testing our product cortinone with slight, well, not slightly, with a higher progesterone to DHA ratio, eight to one, um, if for very highly lethal uh, hematologic cancer. It's a special type of uh, virus-induced leukemia in mice, mm-hmm. and basically, it's it's kind of like the holy grail in animal research. Like if you can, if you can, if you come up with something that stops that cancer. Uh, you know, apparently the Pope will come that will come out of the Vatican and shake your hand. <laughs> that's how it was presented to me. <laughs> uh, basically, nothing nothing can stop that cancer. So that's that's the way it's been presented. Second study, uh, and actually the reason I decided to do it is I wanted uh, first of all I wanted to get access to a lab that can do these studies closer to home, which I guess now is the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I did a lot of a lot of searching over the last year and. I, I wasn't getting anywhere, and that's why I actually started a study in Bulgaria. That was the only option, price-wise. But uh, I, I found a lab here that is that is willing to do it for a more reasonable price. Long story short, that study, if you look at it, it was a Swedish study done in 2008. And unfortunately, they only published the abstract, but the abstract itself is pretty damning. They had three groups, um, and uh, basically they uh, it was mice, and those mice had the human prostate cancer line implanted in them. And then they had one group on, on the established drug, which is called docetaxel. It's a chemotherapy drug. Then the second group got, got docetaxel plus estrogen. And the third group got docetaxel plus DHT. And uh, lo and behold, the group that got docetaxel plus estrogen, their tumors uh, grew like crazy. I think they said like four to five-fold uh, higher volume and tumor density than the group that got simply the standard chemotherapy drug, the docetaxel. And the, the group that got DHT plus docetaxel had about 40% complete cures. And the rest of the tumors basically shrunk uh, up to 60%. So any tumor that was smaller than, I think they said 250 cubic millimeters, which uh, for a human, let me see, I calculated it and I put it in there. For a human, that amounts to... Um, about you know 950 cubic centimeters. That's a massive tumor. If that kind of tumor is in your prostate, I mean, not many people manage to live with, with a tumor that size. Mm-hmm. And the study said that the mouse equivalent of that tumor, the group that got DHT plus docetaxel, it was fully cured. So I said, okay, this is my chance, right? Because I've been posting studies about DHT preventing prostate cancer, DHT maybe you know inhibiting. Um, when it's combined with, uh, you know, uh, vitamin D, but those studies were in vitro, right? So nothing so far has been done with using simply DHT, only DHT, right? The, even this study combined it with an, with, with an established chemotherapy drug. So I said, okay, so let's let's prove it once and for all, right? And uh, you, you see me post the studies about the 
uh, cancer paradox, testosterone curing prostate cancer when injected retinal prostate. Yeah. But even those studies, because the you know pharma industry is smart, they're not gonna uh, they're not going to subject the patient simply to testosterone. These people were still having chemotherapy, and of course, when they when they got these blockbuster results back, pharma jumped in and said, "Oh, it's the synergy between testosterone." And our amazing chemotherapy drugs that's resulting in these cures. It's not the testosterone, right? And I, I called bullshit on that. And I said, well, let's prove it once and for all. So anyways, contact this, this American lab. The, the actual testing is, of course, outsourced, outsourced to China. Long story short, we'll have two groups. One group will have docetaxel, and the se- second group will have DHT only. And if that experiment essentially results i mean it it it, it gets similar or even better results than the the study that i posted on my blog that i think you know i'm going to email every oncologist that i know that i have that i've ever reached out to and say you know why you guys why do you guys keep castrating people given considering these results i may not be able to publish this study but because the study will not be done by me, it will be done by a very reputable lab which actually does work with pharmaceutical companies it'll be very hard to argue with it uh, it was it actually made for a very interesting discussion with the research director of the company when I reached out and said, this is what I want to do. Within seconds, he was on the phone calling me and saying, why do you want to do this? Uh, because, you know, I sent a bunch of studies, including this one. I said, because, you know, ever since this theory first came about that somehow androgens were causing prostate cancer, you do understand that, like, people, some of them Nobel laureates said, this is absurd. Like, why aren't 20-year-old men getting prostate cancer considering their DHT and testosterone are, are the highest that they will ever be. And he's like, well, we uh, I actually need to get a permission from my boss <laughs> before we can sign up for that. I said, no, you're providing services. I'm signing up for these services, and you will do as I say. He said, I still need to get permission from my boss. Long story short, took about two weeks, but eventually he came back and said, okay, we will do it, but – you know, we will send you the results and there will be a huge legal disclaimer underneath. And we'll basically say that, um, you know, because the study uh, did not include a control group, uh, that we do not recommend the study to be published. And I said, there is no need for a control group. Docetaxel was already proven to be better than placebo. All I'm testing is, is DHT worse than the standard of care or better than the standard of care? And he said, Apparently, you like drama and you want to burn the world, but it's your money, so go ahead and do it. What? So, I'm so sorry. What was the the substance you were saying was the standard treatment? Docetaxel. It's it's basically a chemotherapy. It's an anti-androgenic chemotherapy ah, drug. Okay. Okay. So so it's kind of like you know he. I mean, it immediately generated controversy the moment I said it. He said, "Well, what else are you, are you giving the mice except DHT?" I said, "Nothing." Well, why not? Because I want to expand on that study from 2008 where there is strong evidence that DHT was therapeutic. So how about see what DHT on its own will do? And he said, you'll never be able to publish this. I'm like, don't worry about that. Just do the study and I'll worry about publishing it. I mean, I I don't need to publish it. They will send me the results with the statistical analysis. And it's their analysis, right? I said, be very careful because I will do the analysis myself as well. If I catch you guys lying somehow... (laughs) We have a huge issue going. He's like, no, don't worry. We don't do that. No, for a client, that's actually even more dangerous. It'll be more dangerous for us to lie to you than 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 basically, you know, uh, you know, come up with results that says DHT. He said, if that works, uh, please email me back and and we can figure out some subsequent studies. He said because apparently people in his own group said they've been supporting this this idea for a while. They said 
This is insane. We keep coming up with stronger and stronger castration drugs, and more people keep dying from prostate cancer. Something is wrong. We don't know what it is, right? Well, but something is wrong. Well, I know we've talked about it, but the the ultimate height of the the arrogance of that th- theory is the castration resistant prostate exactly. cancer. Exactly. And so we're going to completely eliminate the source of our the what we think is causing the problem, and then we're going to make up a term to 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 like save ourselves basically from our. And, and here is how Georgie plans to actually shatter both theories. So the the uh, they so when you test when you test the uh, when you do uh, test with prostate cancer in animals, they have different types of cell lines that they they implant into the mice, and uh, there are four different major types. Two of them are considered androgen sensitive. In other words, using hormonal therapy on these cancers should work. And two others are considered the castration resistant types. Right. So if this study succeeds. I'm going to do, use the same lab and do a study with DHT on a, on a cancer that's not supposed to react to androgens at all. At all. If that second study succeeds, um, I mean, I, I, I'm calling BS on the whole thing, and I, 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 might, I, might actually, I might even call a lawyer and start a class action lawsuit because that will be, <laughs> no, seriously, that will be the most damning evidence ever because it, twice, first of all, it will show that DHT, which was the target, of, of all these therapies for over 80 years, actually 100 years at this point, is actually not only, not only not the villain, but it's therapeutic. Second of all, it will show that there is no such thing as a hormone-resistant or hormone-negative cancer, just as the breast cancer, right? They have the triple-negative breast cancer, and they're saying, oh, we can't treat you with aromatase inhibitors. Oh, we can't treat you with progesterone because the tumor will not respond. It doesn't care about steroids. Well, it hasn't been tried. That's the whole thing. It's just an assumption. It has not been tried in, 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 an, in an animal or human model. I'm telling you, if that castor-resistant thing reacts to DHT, I don't know. Georgie may have his own show on TV <laughs> and be like, uh, I don't know, like uh, what's that guy, the investor guy, the Jim Cramer, the crazy guy that shouts all the time. Uh, the, uh, the economic guy. What, uh, yeah, yeah. When you're doing these, do you have to provide the raw materials or do they do that? They can, I mean, in this case, they'll have to be them because I don't have a license to possess, buy, or, you know, mix DHT. Um, and I don't trust them. I mean, basically, if this was something that wasn't controlled substance like DHT, I would have probably made it myself, right? But in this case, I don't want these, I don't want, you know, for if I get my hands on DHT and make the compound and send it to them, I don't want them calling FBI and saying, oh, this guy has steroids at home, go bust them because... It is very political. I mean, I'm telling you, everybody, the CEO, the, the, the science director, their legal counsel called me, and, and the whole discussion revolved around why you're trying to test with DHT. And I kept saying, because the Swedish people tested DHT. All I'm doing is expanding on that. Well, you're going to be rocking lo- many boats. Are you sure you want to do that? That's why I'm alive, to rock boats. I'm not sitting here, and I'm not joining the show on Saturday night, to sit there and discuss status quo. I try to shake it. I try to break it. That's the whole point. Ray had a, I asked him about the androgen receptor at one point and he had a great response to me saying that it, it favored glucose oxidation, yeah. but in the presence of PUFA, it's, it's uh, function would basically change. And I wish I, I, I don't think I posted on my Twitter or anything, but I thought that was interesting, and that exp- and we've talked about this a hundred times. But how the different organs, like the skin, are compensating for. So it's very confusing what the androgens are doing. But I think Ray's basic picture of when the thyroid is suppressed, 
you rev up your uh, and your your testes aren't working well, you're not going to produce enough androgens. And then the adrenals and things like the skin basically take over can, producing yeah. androgens. But right? the, so so yeah. So since you said poof, so what happens? I, I I saw another study. I don't know if you've read mentioned that, but in the presence of elevated free fatty acids in the blood, and especially if it's PUFA, basically because these are unsaturated fats, they apparently change the affinity of the receptors for the steroids. So mm-hmm. you can have actually estrogen activate and and drive prostate cancer through the androgen receptor, which is not supposed to do, but mm-hmm. it does. Uh-huh. Oh, but it's only in the presence of polyunsaturated fats or other estrogenic chemicals. So that may be what what these people are seeing. It's got, in other words, the high expression of the androgen receptor in the presence of PUFA. It's almost as if it makes you much more sensitive to estrogens. Um, and and of course, when they start castrating you and the androgens drop, then then the only thing that remains is estrogen to act on the, both on the estrogen and the androgen receptors. Why not this what, to to speak on what you just said? It gets fairly nuanced because doesn't like the um, doesn't estrogen induce the progesterone receptor like in order to eliminate it? Like it, it's very nuanced. Is that right? It's tissue dependent, first uh-huh. of all, uh-huh. and 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 usually like when there is an excess of some of some chemical, that chemical usually has the ability to induce the receptor of its antagonist. So in other words, if you're estrogen dominant, you will probably have, I mean, roughly speaking, more progesterone receptors to make you more sensitive to the progesterone you're producing because just to compensate for that estrogenic excess. Mm -hmm. But at some point, if your estrogen is too high, it starts to actually disintegrate the progesterone receptor just as progesterone in very high concentrations starts to disintegrate the estrogen receptor as well. So it really depends on it depends on, on how much. I guess in the initial phase, when, when you're slightly estrogenic, it's almost like a hormetic effect, right? But over in the long run, you know, all hell breaks loose because the body essentially uses that as a signal that, well, if if, if estrogen is high and continues to be high, then, you know, um, this means stress. And by the way, the um, more and more studies are coming up showing that the main the main mechanism of action, of, uh, main mechanism of action of estrogen on cancers may not be through the estrogen receptor. Estrogen is the most potent endogenous activator of fatty acid oxidation, mm-hmm. and also a suppressor of glucose oxidation as such to the Randall cycle, and also increases lipolysis. So estrogen is the perfect cancer signal, right? So because that cancer thrives on fat. So at some point, the uh, as Otto Warburg said, if the stress signal continues for too long, the cell starts to disintegrate its machinery for oxidative phosphorylation, and part of that machinery is the progesterone receptor and the synthesis of progesterone as well. And just to back up a little bit, I think Jai had told me this, but when he was conversing with Ray, when he met him, Ray, and I'm sure Ray has said this in his articles, but he said like the whole cell is the receptor. And exactly. Making things constantly for given its specific situation. And so that's, right. it's actually, would you say that it's part of the confusing aspect about like if a, a receptor exists or doesn't exist, that can lead somebody to believe a, a certain thing ab- about a problem? Is that right? It could be very confusing if a person. Yeah. Has uh, to, go ahead. 
that's the whole point with the triple negative breast cancer. They're saying it doesn't have estrogen and progesterone receptors, so we're not going to even bother to treat it with steroids, right, mm-hmm. or or blockers of steroids because it's not going to respond. Uh-huh. But that's the assumption, right? Nobody's talking – well, up until maybe two, three years ago, nobody was talking much about non-genomic effects of steroids. In other words, estrogen is a highly unsaturated and reduced – I mean, a highly unsaturated molecule – with with uh, all of its all of its uh, uh, side groups are, are hydroxyl groups. So in other words, it's an electron-rich, unsaturated substance, which by definition makes the cell hydrophilic. It changes its affinity for water, right? So even if you look just at that, progesterone versus estrogen or DHT versus estrogen, one thing makes the cell lipophilic, the beneficial steroids, which makes the cell differentiate instead of absorbing water and starting to divide. And estrogen is the exact opposite. Estrogen is also an antioxidant. In other words, it increases um, like um, the status, the antioxidant shifts the redox balance towards antioxidants, towards reduction, and unsurprisingly, increases the levels of GSH, the, the glutathione in the body. Glutathione, the reduced glutathione, is the main defense mechanism of every cancer cell discovered so far. And, and not to get too deep into this, but it's also the receptor idea is thinking that hormones can only have effects on cells through the receptor where right. Ray like vehemently deny, uh, rejects that. Um, that, that. That's what I mean by genomic effects. Genomic and receptor driven are the same, at least in the, the medical lingo. Okay. Let's take uh, one second. Thank you guys, everybody, for viewing. <laughs> Sincerely appreciate it. If you guys could like this episode, that would be amazing. Sincerely appreciate that. Um, so just some housekeeping stuff. Uh, Georgie is still giving away a, a, a free bottle of anything uh, you want if you enter the contest and you win on idealabsdc.com. So go there. Uh, and this week, Neon Plumber won. And so hit me up on Danny at DannyRoddy.com. That is my email. <laughs> and uh, tell me which supplement you want on idealabsdc.com, the homepage. And then I'll forward that to Georgie and then I'll ship it to you. Um, what else? All Super Chats donated to Mr. Raymond Pete, PhD. I haven't sent him the – I don't think Google has sent me the most recent check for him. But I think it was like around $300 or something. So that's pretty cool. Um, and you can enter the contest by subscribing – leaving a comment and then liking the episode and, and yeah, consider subscribing if you're new. And I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do a a stream with Nick Simpson tomorrow, who is like uh, jacked out of his mind and a very intelligent person that's been following Ray for a long time. And we've just been in communication for a long uh, while. And he, he's uh, I don't know what he wants or doesn't want me to say about his job, but he has a very interesting job training athletes and he's, uh, interesting guy. So I think we're going to do that tomorrow. And like I said, Georgie and I have no intention to stop this. We both are, are really enjoying the YouTube switch. And so we are going to do a, no- a November and December break, but that that's not our intention to keep that going. And we're going to cut it short as soon as possible, just pending if I can get a, a computer. Um, Georgie, what is ID Labs working on at the moment? Uh, the two studies that I mentioned and one new product, which uh, was a little bit delayed. I was supposed to release it this past week, but uh, one of the ingredients got delayed coming from the vendor, but we now have it. It's a combination. It's basically an intestinal disinfectant, um, supposed to work similar to antibiotics, but you know it's not an antibiotic. 
And back in the day, in the early 20th century, it was used for such purpose. And somebody asked Ray about it in one of the ingredients, and he confirmed. He basically said it's one of the ingredients is camphoric acid. Um, and unlike camphor, it doesn't smell, it doesn't have the burning taste, it doesn't, it's 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 different, it's odorless, it's it has this tangy taste of like almost like you're drinking lemon juice. So I think most people will enjoy it. But long story short, it's it's it will be salicyl, uh, camphoric acid and another compound called, called phenyl salicylate. So it's basically it's almost like aspirin. It's it's the combination of phenyl and salicylic acid, and it's resistant to metabolism. It basically goes through the entire digestive system and reaches the colon, where the bacteria breaks it down into phenyl and aspirin, both of which have potent antibacterial effects. In other words, um, not not many people know that, but if there was a way to deliver aspirin directly into the colon, the, it would it would work just just as well as an antibiotic. Uh, the reason it doesn't work so as an antibiotic when we ingest it is because most of it gets absorbed in the stomach in the upper portion of the small intestine. But so if there is a way, just like the, it works similarly to the antibiotic rifaximin, I think it's called, um, it's used for SIBO. So the way this antibiotic works is actually it's non-absorbable and it passes through the entire intestinal tract and on its way it kills all the bacteria. So that's how phenyl salicylate works. Well, something interesting that Ray said about when he would use penicillin VK or erythromycin or whatever is he said he would use it with a with carrot, and so I was like, oh, oh, okay. that must be that must must help it go to the large intestine. Um, and I think that's why he when somebody asked him about coconut oil in one of the early interviews, he he said the same thing. He he used carrot as a carrier, right? Yeah. And carrot also had an antibacterial effect, but he said it's uh, you know same thing with coconut oil, similar to, to aspirin. It will have a really good antibacterial effect, but it gets absorbed and digested before it reaches the colon. So one way to to actually make sure it gets to the colon is take it with carrot or charcoal. That's another way. Basically, it will pass through and digest most of it and reach the colon where it will do its magic. Uh, Steph says, does it have a name yet, Georgie, either of the products? Uh, yes. So let's see. I called the <laughs> – it will be called – uh, cam, camphol, I think. Uh, camphosal. It will be called camphosal because the the phenyl salicylate name, the old name for it was salol, S A L O L, and then from camphoric acid. So either camphisol or or camph camphosol, one of these. Uh, I think camphosol would be better. It sounds. I mean, I, there's a program that tells you which words have the the least amount of of cognitive, cognitive difficulty for people to remember. Huh. And I think camphisol came up first, basically. It was, uh, it was the easiest word to pronounce and remember. I give it to yeah. you for creating all these uh, names. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that, that complicated. I mean, I don't spend that much, much time on it. It's like probably about an hour of like trying different names and like asking a few people and checking a few semi-scientific methods of like how people are supposed to perceive a given word. Okay. Can we talk about the poverty makes people dumb and prematurely old? Yeah. I think uh, that's a great study. The reason why I want to talk about this one is like there, there are so many uh, people online that buy into the uh, genetic theory of people being stupid or inferior or degenerative. And it, it's like, it's sad to see smart people buy into that idea, you know, but it's, it's like fairly prevalent I've seen. And so I, I don't understand how somebody could encounter Ray's work uh, on the 
the impact of the environment on all sorts of things, or even reading Broda Barnes's book where I think we've talked about that quote where he said a few grains of thyroid is the difference between like an idiot and a genius <laughs> a genius, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and buy into the, like the weird IQ slash race stuff that goes around so prevalently. But uh, do you, but do you want to describe uh, this post? So yeah, this is a great study for two reasons. Uh, one of them, it, it, it included a lot of people and tracked them for a while. And second of all, most of the studies that have come out, that's why that's why they've been successfully attacked. They're all observational studies, right? So when you look at people who are in poverty and uh, you know basically, and let's say they exhibit low IQ or perform perform worse on cognitive tests than you know uh, richer people, um, you know, and and you know when when let's say the liberal part of the political spectrum says, oh, you see, poverty makes people dumb. And the Republicans immediately respond, but no, it's just dumb people that end up being poor, right? Yeah. But what this study did is actually looked at people who were rich and not rich and famous, but they were highly educated and part of the upper middle class, but fell on hard times for some for whatever reason. Guess what? Within a few years, these people started performing just as badly on cognitive tests as the people who were living in poverty for a while. So that that's pretty strong evidence that it's the poverty that's actually the causative factor in performing poorly, you know, being basically dumb. Worst of all, I mean, they when they looked at uh, uh, like certain biological biomarkers of aging, um, those markers were increased, and it it didn't matter if you were highly educated before, um, but if if poverty strikes you and you spend time in poverty for a few years, then you're already prematurely aged. And I think they said after about 20 years, the, the study the study was worded to kind of say like you're pretty much done in. Like if so, 20 years of your life of your life have passed in poverty, your your health is ruined, your intelligence is ruined, and you're basically um, you know about 10 to 15 years older than your chronological age. So you're pretty screwed up. So you quoted it says third the stress of exposure to low income has been shown to be associated with dysfunction of the hypothalamic adrenocortical stress. axes. Uh, yeah. Which in turn a pathway leading to worse risk factors for co- of cognition. Because I remember uh, when I was first interested in that brain shrinking idea, the 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 low socioeconomic people. That was like something that was fairly common among even like kids that were yeah. uh, like a bit poor. And so I thought that was uh, interesting. But but race, I, I haven't investigated it to. Uh, like a great depth or anything, but he was talking about how anorexia and I'm assuming poverty, like the brain can bounce back if it's nourished, you know? Yes. Yeah. There's a study in rats, actually multiple studies in rats and even monkeys would show that even after, even just a week of a, of a, a life in the stimulating environment, which means lack of stress and good nutrition and exposure to new and stimulating, but not stressful events was enough to restore brain volume. So one of the first things that was seen, and, and that's what led me. So if you look at the study, they actually propose four different explanations of why poverty may cause stupidity, right? And one was maybe poor people like have poor diet. They would drink a lot of alcohol. They would eat crappy foods, right? Then another one was maybe they'll make poor lifestyle choices in terms of like, you know, some of them will be homeless or, you know, some of them will be uh, like they, they lack the support of family, um, third one was, oh, maybe they will seek less medical care because, like, they don't have the insurance, right? They don't have the, the financial means to do it. And then the last one was the stress. And I, I picked the stress as the most as the most plausible explanation because if you look at the other three, they're also dependent on stress. Guess what? If you're eating crappy food, 
laden with PUFA and all of these endocrine disruptors that, that are associated with the cheapest food, like, you know, chips and all kinds of, like, processed foods from CVS or Rite Aid, that, that also raises your stress hormones, right? And then, like, the lack of family support, that tremendously raises the amount of stress hormones. Um, maybe the seeing your doctor not very often, maybe that's not such a bad thing after all. I think that might, that one might actually may scratch it off the list i haven't i thought of emailing the authors i haven't done it yet but um, i I, I'll, i'll do it but main message here is just as you said if if stress is associated uh with such a dramatic reduction in brain volume then you should immediately think that cortisol is somehow implicated there is nothing more catabolic for muscle or brain or skin and several other organs but specifically uh, thymus uh, muscle and brain are the most susceptible To, to the effects of cortisol. Anytime you see shrinkage in one of these, you should be suspecting cortisol, and that's why I picked the uh, chronic over overactivation of the hypothalamic adrenal cortical axis as the most likely explanation. And I think it should be noted that, like, we're all poor in a sense. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, all of our quality of life, like, uh, in a broad sense, has been greatly disturbed. So I, I don't know if I've told this story, but I met with a friend not too long ago And he's, uh, he makes a lot of money, but he was talking about kind of like how I was talking about just a second ago about poor people specifically. But I, but I was thinking, I was like, I, I don't know if like, you know, how low your quality of life is, even though he makes a lot of money, like him and I are breathing in toxic air, eating our like toxic restaurant food <laughs> that's been cooked <laughs> in God knows what. And like, and, and in general, our quality of life is, uh, is, is pretty low. And th what made me think of that is, um, Ivan Illich's, uh, or maybe this isn't the greatest quote, but anyways, this, the society is, uh, as a whole is impoverished. And I know we're, we're talking about specifically poor people here, but it shouldn't be like, oh, the rich people are good and the poor people are good. Like we're all being actively harmed yeah but i think this is a great one because at the very least it puts a little bit of a break on the response that has always been no it's just people who are born stupid are kind of like destined to be poor because they just can't perform as well as the others well no they took some highly successful people studied them and if these people fell in hard times they actually did just as badly as the dummies from from the ghetto for a lack of a better word Uh, sweet. Okay. Did you have an affinity for any of these or energy energy deficiency due to stress causes anxiety, panic disorders, subordination yeah. and subordination? I think that last one is key. So another great study for two reasons. Um, one of them is that it, it basically did the study, uh, did the more, more invasive biomarkers on mice, but then it correlated those biomarkers with, with studies on people And he found out that, you know, unsurprisingly, we've already kind of like covered it so many times, but in mice at least, anytime that the, the mouse is chronically stressed, um, the, th the things that are the, basically they see changes in the, in, the, uh, in the methylation of the genome, and in, in, which results, of course, in the change of the proteins that are being produced. And, and what they saw, the, 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 some, of the, some of the most striking changes were decline in genes that encode for cytochrome C oxidase, right? And, and basically, so they also had groups that are resilient to stress. So in the groups that were susceptible to, to stress, they saw elevated, elevated elevation of the genes that code for the glucocorticoids, which is not surprising at all, right? And then uh, they also saw basically a reduction 
in the genes that 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 uh, reduced expression of um, of the of the genes that cause that call that uh, code for cytochrome C oxidase. Um, in other words, oxidative phosphorylation. In the stress resilient mice, they actually saw a reduction in the genes that encode for estrogen. In other words, like basically estrogen is less has less effect in mice that are resilient to stress. And then they also saw that these mice that were that were resilient to stress, they had higher uh, expression of, of basically proteins that that uh, responsible for oxidative phosphorylation. And then they took that, uh, that that genome study and they thought like, well, it's probably not going to match very well or at all with humans, but let's just do it anyways. So then they took blood from people with anxiety, generalized anxiety disorders, panic attacks, panic disorders, and these people were not on any medication, right? So this this can exclude that, you know, because of course when you do a study with patients that are on drugs, immediately the study will be attacked with like maybe it was the drugs that caused it or maybe these people, you know, were taking the wrong drug. Well, guess what? They weren't taking any drugs. And strikingly, all the people with these disorders had the exact same uh, expression profile of the genes as the mice that were susceptible to stress and developed these disorders as well. And perhaps worst of all, they only tested it in mice but rats and mice that have high anxiety and or panic due to stress uh, immediately develop a, a, a subordination behavioral profile. In other words, when they're met when when they're met with a new rat or a new mouse, which typically triggers like in in the colonies, it triggers a fight. Like the intruder is being fought, right? But these mice that were stressed and they were in the rats that were stressed and they had anxiety, they immediately surrendered. They basically assumed the subordinated stance and, and the intruder was allowed to do whatever the intruder wants to do, even if the intruder was thought to be less physically capable than the than the mice or rat that were with the anxiety. In other words, if these rice uh, if these mice and rats were in good health, they would have probably fought off the intruder, right? There was as they usually do because they're bigger, they're stronger, etc. Not so when 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 they had the anxiety disorder due to chronic stress, they immediately they immediately became servile. And I thought to myself, well, given the um, there was another study which was done on monkeys, and it showed that even a slight elevation in serotonin removes the dominant status of the alpha male in the in the in the pack or I guess group would be a group of, not group but uh, what do you call uh, it's not a pack of baboons. I think the study was done with baboons. Anyways, actually, it's called a congress. <laughs> a group of baboons is called a congress. It makes perfect sense. So re- go ahead the- and rename this episode really quick. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, even a slight increase in serotonin in the alpha male makes makes him no longer the alpha male. And that's what the study found. The same thing happens. They didn't test an alpha male, but they tested just a regular male that's supposed to be stronger than an invader, yet immediately... Uh, he submits. He basically assumes a subordinative stance, and and the intruder takes over. And um, you know, I thought that wow, um, if the SSRI, I mean, the SSRI drugs must be like the ultimate wet dream of any autocrat. You feed the population SSRI drugs, and they'll never question you. I mean, they may turn on each other, which is what other studies about serotonin show. Remember, turning the crabs homicidal like uh, cannibalistic and whatnot, even in very low doses because the crabs were taking the estrides from the from the sewage water that got into the ocean. So these are concentrations thousands of times lower than what you would get if you get if you take an SSRI drug. Imagine what happens to humans when they take these massive doses. So they turn into zombies 
servile zombies that don't question the authorities but turn on each other. Which, Roger, why would uh, why would any nation want a compliant citizenry? Why would that be of use to anybody? That's that's yeah. a crazy conspiracy. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's what the CIA has been doing for the last fifty years and hasn't even been hiding it. Just read up on Project MK Ultra and or actually Unit Seven Five One. This horrific. Are you familiar seven, with them? Unit Seven Three One, right? Seven Three One, exactly. Well, well, uh, good. Keep in mind, CIA got most of its techniques and funded some of the experiments in that unit. Not directly, but they took the results and they they basically encouraged. I think was the, this happened in Japan, right during the Second World War. The CIA was actively involved, but but it wasn't there on site to perform the actual experiments. But they guided the Japanese, and then all the results that were that, that were produced by this unit got absorbed by the CAA and the records were mysteriously destroyed afterwards. But, but that's old. That stuff's over now. <laughs> Wait, are you thinking of the Phoenix program? That's like the the, uh, the 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 author Douglas Valentine thinks that the Phoenix program that was performed in uh, Vietnam where they round up the Vietnamese and like basically tortured them and, and, and killed them at will. And then they also kept um, – like very specific documents of their relationships and trying to figure out who the um, wasn't like 70 or 80 percent of the people were like communists and they were trying to infiltrate. Uh, I'm going to butcher this, but basically they were just killing people that weren't going along with what they were doing. And then Douglas Valentine thinks that they uh, basically Homeland Security and everything that's going on now is like an extension of that. But you probably have read about Unit 731 more than I have. Yeah, the reason I mentioned it is because it's most famous for the fact that it did some horrific experiments, physical experiments on people. But the lesser known part of uh, lesser known role of Unit 731 was that some of the experiments were done were basically strikingly reminiscent to the enhanced interrogation techniques that uh, were applied yeah. to the terrorists after 9/11 that were caught. Yeah. These techniques didn't come out of nowhere. They've been yeah. researched and experimented on humans. By starting probably, I don't know if maybe even earlier, but we don't know about it. But Unit Seven Three One had a special special subdivision that did that. That was that was basically focused on doing experiments on how to break a person's mind and how to get them to do exactly what you want and without that, any questioning whatsoever. And that's definitely a part of MK Ultra. And then MK yeah. Ultra has, I think, if my memory serves me right, twenty two sub projects that were never declassified. <laughs> And so we know like the tip of the iceberg about uh, of what MK Ultra was actually about. And I don't know if the photo is real, but if you type in like MK Ultra girl, there's like a young kid that's like chin strapped. It's kind of a disturbing picture, but chin strapped to a bed and like they're trying to erase her mind or something. And that's kind of the MO of these uh, weird CIA programs. Anyways, to get back to serotonin, I'm sure we've talked about it a thousand times but that tops paper serotonin modulator uh, of a drive to withdraw. And that kind of explains, no, 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 I don't want to get involved in, in this like sketchy or novel situation. Like the high serotonin yeah. person will resist a novel, uh, maybe interesting or even dangerous situation because they want to preserve their, their like pseudo pseudo hibernation metabolism and, and conserve that. And, um, Actually, if you open that study on energy deficiency, stress, anxiety, panic disorders, wow. there is this exact same quote from the actual study. So, and I, 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 uh, I kind of summarize it from the beginning. It says, "I say this is my language: mental health disorders are 
a maladaptive downregulation of energy production in the brain in an effort to conserve energetic resources in the face of inescapable stress. That's exactly what serotonin does as well, right? It, it drives you to, to conserve your limited energy because the, your assumption going forward is that life will be stressful. And there, there are a few things that are more stressful to a low-energy person than novelty. I mean, it doesn't have to be necessarily... I guess there's something inherently threatening in novelty because even if even if it's not directly threatening to you, the, your question will always be, oh, things are going to change now and I have to relearn things. Now I have to basically put in an extra effort to learn how to deal with this new world. And that's enough to make a high serotonin person even violent. Well, also in Karen, this is her, her wording, but like if you break from conformity, you're going to like you're going to pay for it. Too. Yeah, like exactly. you might get if you do a different exercise at the gym where everybody is doing standard exercises, you might get made fun of or or whatever. Yeah. So that's also. But what you just said, they must have been like quoting this that Andrew's paper because uh, this is a paraphrase. But he's like the melancholic brain appears to be reconfiguring to learn solutions to complex problems. Learning appears to be so energetically expensive that growth and reproduction are downregulated. The processes involved. Um, and making these trade-offs are coordinated by serotonin. So, I don't know if they quoted the study or not, but the the evidence is at this point is piling up pretty high that serotonin is very has very few functions other than making you depressed. <laughs> um, if anything, probably the, for the only people who experience relief from serotonin, unsurprisingly, are people with PTSD. They have such uh, low level, low threshold of being of being sent into a panic state that, in fact, lobotomizing them with an SSRI drug, they actually somehow feel is therapeutic. They no longer feel threatened. They just no longer feel anything, right? And for a person like that, uh, if you go and read the papers, even, even the psychiatrists that are treating people with PTSD, there's no drug approved yet. We know that ketamine um, it treats it. I think they actually they just approved ketamine for depression. Oh, I'm sorry, ecstasy. It's MDMA. Ecstasy, which is known to treat PTSD, and their clinical trials going on, going on with it right now, but it's not approved yet. Long story short, psychiatrists know that the one thing that may work in a PTSD patient is a, an SSRI drug, and even they say they think that the reason is it depletes their brain their brain energy so much that they simply can't think about and ruminate over all these things because the one of the key features of depression is rumination, right? It's ne- plus negative thinking and feelings of hopelessness and, and, and despair. But even those kind of feelings and thoughts require energy. So if you if you decrease it, you know, to the point of not having enough to even do that, then these people may paradoxically feel relief. I won't call it feeling relief. They actually just wouldn't be feeling anything. Uh, we might, You might have already talked about it, but what if somebody said, hey, I w- I'm having panic attacks, what would what would your response be? Uh, most likely elevated lactate in the brain and or combined with high serotonin and or cortisol. But all of these things go together, you know. I So far, the tests that have been done that have tested, no test that I am aware has been done that has measured all of these th- three things in the brain for no other reason but the fact that it's hard to make these invasive, invasive tests on, on people's brains, right? Mm-hmm. So the closest you can get is actually tests on cerebrospinal fluid right, from depressed people or suicidal victims shortly after they've been discovered. And without a doubt, they have increased amounts of 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid, which is the main metabolite of serotonin, which suggests that there's – and it's really high. 
So it suggests that serotonin levels were skyrocketing just before he committed suicide. And the same thing about about cortisol. Um, and then lactate is, was known in the 1960s to be implicated almost every mental disorder because I posted this uh, study about two years ago. A combination of vitamin B1 and acetazolite, both of which uh, lower lactic acid and increase carbon dioxide, was found to cure more than 70% of severe mental disorders that were considered intractable at the time. They responded to nothing, even electroconvulsive therapy. So, <laughs> so these people at the time weren't kidding around. They were they would subject you to any treatment they think has a chance, even if it was unethical. And they did try everything, and nothing worked except you know these these simple methods that lowered lactic acid in the brain. Um, another potential non lactic acid related trigger of panic attacks maybe um, that stress peptide released by the hypothalamus CRH which is the initial step in the uh, in the um, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal cortical axis and um, things that lower or block the receptor for this peptide such as pregnenolone and progesterone are known to be uh, very potent and quick acting um, you know, uh, stoppers of the panic attack. I think somebody asked Ray about pregnenolone. He said one of its unique functions is that it changes a protein in the brain and, and you know, stops panic attacks in its tracks because apparently without that peptide, panic attacks cannot cannot form fully. You said that about progesterone? Pregn- pregnenolone. Pregnenolone, oh. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, we're getting a heap of um, super chats. Thank you guys so much. We'll answer those towards the end. And just to remind everybody, <laughs> uh, everything's donated to Ray Pete. Uh, consider subscribing if you're new. If you're enjoying this episode, please like it. I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, you guys showed like a huge support on the last show. And so hopefully these are getting better every time we do them. You know, uh, I can only imagine what 100 episodes will look like if we're at 12 at the moment. So uh, and we wouldn't be anything without you guys. So people keep con- uh, continuously turning out for them and, and sincere appreciation. And then Steph, our incredible, uh, fa- uh, uh, <laughs> amazing moderator. Um, so thank you, Steph. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Georgia, did you want to, the aspirin article? Yeah, I think that's, that's also pretty amazing. I mean, little humble aspirin here shows up, you know, uh, strikes once again, um, I think there was last show or the show before where we showed that aspirin is more effective than Viagra and with no side effects, right? So this one is actually pretty important, I think, because all major cities around the world at this point have a, an amount of air pollution that's considered um, way above optimal, right? And I know the I don't know I don't know if you know, but EPA revises its recommendations every year uh-huh. <laughs> to comply with whatever industry has paid it to say, um, but. Um, it's really hard to protect yourself from that because this air is everywhere and most of the household air conditioning systems cannot filter this out. Um, they can, you know, there are some more advanced filters that can do it and they're usually based on some kind of ionization or, you know, electricity to, to trap these particles. But most most filters in, uh, in like in a, in a house or apartment building air conditioning cannot, cannot stop it. So you're exposed, if you live in a city like I do, you're exposed to this all the time. Uh, bad thing is that these particles, they're called particulate matter, uh, it's mostly composed of, uh, of charred carbon. They build up in your lungs, and after a while, they have, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if you've seen, but they have these pictures where they compare 
the lungs of a person who lived in, let's say, Beijing, which is famous for its for its polluted air, and a smoker who smoked three packs a day for 20 years, and they're indistinguishable. Um, there are also like a number of studies I posted in, in there in the thread which link air pollution to autism, to uh, cognitive decline, especially dementias and like uh, the severe one known as Alzheimer's, um, depression, bipolar disorder, um, infertility, and a number of other things. Um, and all of this is due to the to basically to the buildup of of these uh, pollutants in your lungs because they stay there and they trigger a chronic inflammatory response, which is the, which is what the study confirmed as well. Well, aspirin somehow managed to not only block the inflammatory response, but it, it also almost restored lung function to normal. And this study also noticed the people who are exposed to pollution they have similar decline in lung function in lung capacity, similar to a smoker. Uh, you know, they didn't, I don't think they did like three, compare it to three packs a day, but they did mention that uh, the effects of it being exposed to air pollution and smoking are pretty much identical. So maybe aspirin can be used by smokers as well. I didn't say it in the, in the blog post, but I just, this, this just reminded me, I, I'll update it later. So, um, and, and the, the um, effect was dose dependent as well. And they also said that mostly applies to aspirin. Um, they they don't think that the, the other NSAIDs, so-called non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, they didn't think they would have the same effect. Um, so humble aspirin, even in a dosage of 80 to 100 milligrams a day, which most doctors probably are not going to violently try to talk you out of, was sufficient to almost completely restore lung function from uh, uh, damage by pollution, by air pollution. It's amazing outpouring of Super Chats. Thank you guys. Uh, so much, and and obviously just forward that cash straight to Ray. Somebody just donated two hundred dollars, <laughs> so that's <laughs> wow. that's uh, I'm like speechless. So thanks, guys. Yeah, I mean traveling to Japan and Kuala Lumpur and things, and I know Japan is probably just bad to be there in general because of the radiation, but the people, everybody wears masks now, you know. And even in Mexico, when I'm walking, the it, the the streets are so tight that when a car goes by, you really will be breathing in like a thick amount of exhaust. And so I bet the air quality is better here. But whenever I take a walk anywhere, uh, I'm probably taking in uh, quite a bit of uh, exhaust and things. But I don't know about you. Just just go to UPS website and look at the revision, look at the different um, settings, the different levels that they define as safe throughout the years. And just email EPA and say, how come you thought that, let's say, an level X was okay in the 80s, and now you're saying, like, a level 100 times X is, is okay for us? Like, what happened over these 30 years? Did we turn into, like, superhumans so now we can resist that damage? So, yeah. Um, well, just uh, as, as with the with the uh, EMF pollution ratings, I mean, the um, um, I think I sent you that link was a person who actually has – been doing this for like he can he worked at the EPA. He said that the levels of safe exposure to non-ionizing radiation, like from your phone or your Wi-Fi router, these are actually the these are actually the upper limits of what he would consider like acceptable to expose himself for at least for even ten minutes. Yeah. Well, I just pulled up your interview with Matt Blackburn, and um, oh shoot. What you just said reminded me of the idea of the lab ranges. And so yes. it's like this lab range is okay if you're young. And then when you're in uh, middle age, this lab range is okay. And then this lab range is okay when you're older. And it's really like this is 
totally bizarre thinking. It's like if the, if it's dangerous in this range when you're young, it doesn't get safer as right. you get older. <laughs> it makes no sense. Like what are they ta- what are they talking about? Well, that study that I posted on anti-aging with uh, metformin and growth hormone that we discussed on the last show, yeah, or yeah. we didn't. Yeah. yeah, I think we discussed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you look there, they actually say. We've been thinking about aging the wrong way. Like there is nothing about aging that is good for you. Like so, aging should probably re- be reclassified as a disease. Hence, what we're doing this study, we're trying to cure, like or treat it, or whatever. I mean, but we're definitely. I mean, if you read that study, they they they're they're making they're not making any secret about their stance. They're saying we don't think that aging is a either natural or beneficial. And should not be should not be left on its own. It needs to be it needs to be assessed and addressed like any other pathological condition. Yet the FDA currently doesn't define aging as a problem. It's it's like a natural state. I'd, I'd rather have to go through the the source of this um, paper. But somebody asked in the comments, like, did you think how they were estimating the reversal in age was accurate? Um. I mean, they, they did a number of different biomarkers. One of them was basically the uh, the amount of of cell the, these immune cells produced by the thymus, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, they did. I don't think they actually did an ultrasound and see if the thymus was restored. But since these cells can only come from the thymus, I think at least that part was probably pretty legit. Uh, some of the other things that they assessed, uh, I haven't looked at whether they define it, how they define it, but they say basically there are a number of different formulas. Some of them are focused on immune function. I think some others are focused on liver and kidney function, mm-hmm. and they used four or five of these, and they saw a reversal you, you, no matter what formula they, they used. So they thought, okay, so we must be seeing an actual systemic reversal of biological aging because all four different formulas gave us a, a reversal. Um, now, I, I don't think I, I mean, I don't know if they, they're justified in giving like a specific number. They said like a 6.54 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Come on, give me a break. Like the, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, but that's the formula they have, and according to it, it they did see a reversal. If nothing else, thymus was regenerated. And keep in mind, if you talk to any doctor, they'll tell you that once the thymus is gone, it's gone. And after about the age of, I think, I think 35 is what they say, it starts to degenerate just like any other organ. And the doctor will tell you it's not going to get better with age, and there's nothing we can do to reverse it. Well, apparently not. And I, I'm like blanking on all the specifics we talked about. But do you think even though the the dose of DHEA was excessive, maybe in a short term, how long was it? Do you remember how long this was on? Even if it was excessive, it could have some p- possibly protective effects. Yeah. And, and what gives me so so they, they gave people metformin, right? And they gave people metformin and DHEA, not because of their anti-aging effects, which they claim there aren't any, right? But to protect from the diabetogenic <sighs> effects of growth hormone, right? <laughs> But guess what? Metformin is actually has a slight uh, effect as an aromatase inhibitor. Oh, right. it, it may have protected this high dose of DHA. Actually, the main damage, the main the main danger from it would be its its elevation of estrogen, which they did see. But it, I think it was only in two patients. They saw um, basically these patients develop gynecoma- gynecomastia, which to me immediately shows you that you know yes, fifty milligrams is estrogenic. It, it's not. It's not that easy to develop gynecomastia if estrogen is in is in is in range. Yeah. Well, long story short, I think the fact that they use metformin, as bad as metformin is, protected from some of the uh, estrogenic effects of DHEA, you know, converting downstream, and that allowed DHEA to exert its its uh, anti anti glucocorticoid effect on the thymus, um, and 
Of course, I posted other studies in there on specifically DHEA, restoring thymus weight, reversing um, the atrophy of the thymus in response to uh, elevated glucocorticoids. So, so yeah, so I, I think that despite the high dose, they, they looked out <laughs> and it, it was it's the law of unintended consequences, right? They design a trial and they claim it's the, gro- the growth hormone that did it, but in reality, there is sufficient evidence pointing to both metformin and DHEA, mostly the latter, right? With metformin serving as a protector of the side effects of DHEA. So yeah, I must have missed that last time. Okay, do you want? Let's jump into super chats. Is that okay? Okay, sure. Okay. Um, Laz, hey brother, uh, for two dollars, thank you so much. He says possible solutions to heart palpitations. Thank you. A uh, couple of things could be hormonal. Elevated cortisol and estrogen are both known to cause abnormal heart heart rhythm. Um, could be electrolytes, right? Um, could be deficiency of calcium. I've, I've I know people who had heart palpitations have had them for decades and they tried magnesium uh they tried taurine and all of these things kind of helped but you know basically they, it wasn't resolving the issue like they had to take these these uh, supplements on demand in order to prevent like this this thing you know from becoming worse or stopping it in its tracks yet as soon as they increased their calcium intake to more than one gram per day the calcium palpitations uh, the heart palpitations disappeared and in many of these cases, I think five so far that I've heard, they claim that they don't have them anymore. They only have them under, when they're under extreme stress or getting tired, which, of course, you know, given the cortisol rises and the stress, maybe it's all, you know, it's, it's all related. It's cortisol that makes you lose magnesium, makes you lose, uh, actually, you retain sodium, but lose magnesium and potassium because cortisol can activate the uh, mineralocorticoid receptors. So the, for heart palpitations... I would try increasing um, the sodium and the calcium intake, and probably milk would be the easiest thing, or maybe something like uh, the Pecorino Romano cheese, which is very rich in both uh, calcium and sodium. It t- tends to be fairly salty. So that would be the first thing I would try. Um, orange juice has also shown some some promise. I think there are even human studies on orange juice for heart, pulp- for heart palpitations. And I don't think it's the potassium that's the beneficial agent there because potassium can actually destroy your heart that's what they use for the lethal injections um it's it's most likely the the flavonoids such as uh hesperidine um the apigenin and the noringenin that are known to be in orange juice because these uh, they're actually called phytoprogestogens they have the same effect as progesterone and it's which reminds me then the next thing i was going to mention is progesterone so progesterone has known uh, heart rhythm stabilizing effects and it has a positive chronotropic and positive ionotropic effects on the heart. It's one of the few chemicals that can do that. Thyroid is the other one. So by by, by increasing the heart rate and stabilizing its function, progesterone is often uh, capable of getting rid of palpitations. But I would try the uh, I would try the dietary pro- approach first and maybe even throw in progesterone there for a good measure. Taurine also helps, but I've noticed that so far People who try taurine without improving their calcium intake did not experience long-lasting benefit from taurine, from the amino acid. It was it was short-lived. It was for a few hours at most a day, and they had to keep taking it on a daily basis in order for this to uh, to continue to work. Sweet, Ellie. Thank you so much. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Movie Bomb for $5. Thank you so much, Movie Bomb. They say, can a person with good thyroid function ever have cold hands and or feet? Uh, thoughts on acid ref- uh, also 
Also, thoughts on acid reflux after a esophagitis diagnosis? So um, I don't think if thyroid function is, is good. Well, I guess briefly you can have it. But if this is a recurring thing, I don't. I, I think it's actually it's a pretty strong indicator that thyroid function is not good. That's probably one of the most reliable diagnostic criteria for elevated adrenaline. If your if your extremities are cold, um, then usually usually adrenaline is involved because that's the whole point. It's when metabolism is low, the blood is getting withdrawn to protect the vital organs. Uh, especially if you if your extremities are cold, but your heart rate is elevated, then it's almost a done deal that adrenaline is high. So, uh, and another a quick way to test is actually uh, drinking something salty or eating something salty. If that quickly improves the temperature of your extremities, then that's another. Uh, you know, dead giveaway that adrenaline is, is elevated. Can I jump in? I, I don't think if you're going to do something that's uh, abnormally s- stressful, I don't think it's like, uh, I don't think it's extremely meaningful that you, if you experience cold hands and feet, I don't think it's means your thyroid is suppressed per se. Uh, like even right, though, a, a brief stressful event, of course, can can probably cause this even in a person with a good thyroid yeah, function. Yeah, I that's, meant that's what is, I'm trying to say. Yeah. If, if that's if that's your normal state of affairs, then I don't think you can have high thyroid because his question was, can a person with high thyroid ever have these things? Yes, yeah. per, like like sporadically as a brief event when you're under stress. But if that's how you always are or predominantly are, then it's I wouldn't call yourself being high thyroid. It's actually a pretty good indication that your thyroid function is low. Well said. It would it would depend on the frequency of occurrence. If it was happening all the time versus like a blue moon stressful speaking event or something right. like that. Okay. And then the thoughts on acid reflux after esophagitis diagnosis. So so the the, eso- the esophageal sphincter is actually has been shown. Ray mentioned this very long time ago, but I at the time I wasn't able to find studies to confirm it. But since then I have. And basically, um, it, it's it's function. It's made weaker, and it's not a, it's not a coincidence that most people with GERD they actually it, it increases the incidence increases with age, and the severity also increases with age. So the actual loosening of the sphincter is caused by elevated cortisol to DHEA ratio. In other words, once again, the you know the stress hormones you know rule unopposed, and I would actually test DHEA on a blood test and or testosterone. So high cortisol to testosterone. Or high cortisol to DHEA ratio is usually what causes the loosening of the sphincter. But as far as the actual GERD disease, it, it, um, I don't know if you remember, that was a study that I posted on the Rapid Forum almost five years ago. It showed that it's actually an inflammatory disease. And that's why the proton pump inhibitors, these extremely toxic drugs, which at this point have now been proven to cause stomach cancer, something which the, the, the company that first brought into marketing was Merck, vehemently denied and even threatened to sue for libel any doctor that, that claimed that TPI drugs cause cancer, stomach cancer. Well, now we know they do, uh, as they're supposed to. Anything that stops the production of stomach acid causes atrophic gastritis, and that's the precursor condition for stomach cancer. Anyways, long story short, the loosening of the – so you can have a little bit of a reflux, and that's usually caused by the loosening of the sphincter. But if it's a full-blown GERD, and the only way to diagnose this is usually you have to get an endos- endoscopy done. And they actually take some some uh, tissue culture from your esophagus. And then the next more severe stage is called Barrett's esophagus. It's a precursor condition to esophageal cancer. So all of these, including the, the minor, like what they call GERD is considered a, a minor condition. Barrett's esophagus will be the second most severe and, of course, esophageal cancer the most severe. 
all three are known to be inflammatory disorders. And one of the studies that I saw showed that glycine was actually pretty effective at combating it. So maybe increasing your gelatin intake. Um, and, and also like um, glycine has a known protective effect on both the esophageal lining and the stomach lining. So we, even if there is a problem with, with uh, excess stomach acid, which is very rare, it's actually called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. It is a type of, a, uh, it's almost like, a, it's actually caused by a tumor, a neuroendocrine tumor in the pancreas, causing the increased overproduction of, of gastric acid. It's very rare. That's why whenever I heard somebody saying, uh, I have GERD, which my doctor told me I have too much acid, no. Uh, it's almost like the, the, adrenal, the adrenal fatigue, right? Uh, there is adrenal failure, which is known as Addison disease, and the incidence is about 1 in 20,000. If you have that, and you don't get cortisol treatment, you die. So since you are alive and you've been continued to be alive, you don't have adrenal failure, right? Same thing here. Like if you truly had the the the, the uh, gastric acid excess, it, it is this. It's co- it's caused by this tumor in the pancreas, and you know it's it's a very rare condition. In most cases, it's simply the irritation of the esophageal lining from the acid in the food that are percolating upwards due to cortisol weakening the sphincter, right? But it's still the actual damage, the actual irritation of the esophagus is, a, is an inflammatory condition, and glycine was shown to relieve it pretty reliably. Yeah, just to piggyback, uh, I've experienced this like uh, at least two or, two or three years ago I had it, and I, I, uh, somebody asked Ray, and he said it's usually associated – and this just – this is – very similar to what you just said. He said, it's usually associated with disturbed muscle action on the whole stomach and the intestine and gallbladder, high estrogen, serotonin, prostaglandins, low thyroid, inflammation, and bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine are uh, are often involved. And he said, stimulating the intestine with a daily raw carrot helps. And so just like you said, it's actually like a really serious systemic problem. And uh, for me, uh, I haven't experienced it in a long time, but uh, I think the aspirin and an antibiotic like fixed it in a few days, yeah. basically. And you just remind because Ray mentioned estrogen. I actually saw a study, an old study, which showed that um, the, uh, they actually at the time they didn't have aromatase inhibitors, but they did a like so basically they they castrated I think female rats, in which reliably lowers th- their estrogen and their progesterone. And I think that that study showed that it almost eliminated the GERD. I don't know what the what model of GERD they used in rats, but so um, and I think I saw another study which was done. It was actually a case report where they actually did use an aromatase inhibitor, but I'm blanking on the name right now. I don't think it was. I don't think it was one. I don't think it was Examestate. I think it was one of the early ones like Anastrozole, and that also helped relieve the GERD. Um, doctors were pretty surprised because they thought it's not supposed to be a you know, a hormonally driven condition, but apparently it is. So yeah, cortisol, estrogen, serotonin. Um, and so this also reminds us that maybe cyproheptin will help. It blocks all three of these hormones. Sweet. Uh, thank you. Um, movie bomb. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, uh, Drew F has another, Hey Drew, uh, Drew F for $2 with no message. And just because he just posted it, I'll just, uh, say his message here. He says, um, do you guys think that cells, gels, and the engines of life is a good introductory text for learning about cell physiology? Uh, have you read that book, Jordy? Was this by Jared Pollack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think it's actually it's a great book. Uh, probably one of the most accessible um, treatments on the subject of how water and the structure of water uh, basically like controls the health of the cell, actually the entire life of the cell. And that water is not just an inert element that we all kind of like, we need it only for hydration. No, just like carbon dioxide, water is crucial for the maintenance um, and actually for some of the, for many of the pathological conditions. The lack of control over water inside the cell is what drives pretty much every single chronic condition, whether that's diabetes, cancer, especially cancer, right? Because it's a proliferative disease and increased water, increased proliferation, increased absorption of water. But uh, it's been shown, you know, this brain edema swelling, right, which is still also um, also involves the loss of control over water, seen in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, stroke, cardiovascular disease. Like even if you have a heart attack, most of the time these people will actually end, end up having uh, brain edema. And sometimes the, 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 the disturbance, cognitive disturbance that people with heart attacks have, it's precisely because of that. It's because they their, their brain swole. Uh, was swollen while they were having a heart attack. And in some cases, in very severe cases, they even have to open the skull and allow the brain, give it some space to expand because otherwise you'll herniate and kill the person. So water is very important. I think that book is a very, very good uh, treatment on how structured and unstructured water control our health. I think the, for me at least, the major benefit of that book is the the pictures. And so I think if you're like a visual person, it's much easier to uh, see what he's talking about with the channels and the pumps and things like that. But then that book, similar to Gilbert's, Gilbert Ling's books, gets too technical for me in like the middle. But but again, every time I flip through it, it uh, becomes more and more useful. And again, it's like there's – unless you're doing these experiments and you're looking at things, it, those those pictures help so much I think. Uh, thank you so much, Drew. This one's from RR for $10. Thank you. So you guys are like killing it with the super chat. It's like, well, cause you told him you're going to be go for two months and now they try to compensate. Uh, I guess so. It's like three, $320 that I'll just forward to Ray. So, uh, thank you guys so much. Um, RR for $10. Thank you. They say, I believe my intuition should lead me to the right foods and actions for a given situation. I felt this before. Have you guys felt this? Any tips on how to induce it? What do you think, Georgie? Um, I think that, um, first of all, it depends on your choices as well, right? I mean, you don't want to be orthorexic. If you're in a situation where the only thing available is a salmon, as Ray said, you might as well eat it and enjoy it because that will prevent a lot of the damage that salmon would normally do if you're worried about all the time, worry yourself to death of like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? I ruined my regimen, right? And, and, you know, many times you don't have a choice, not just because of food, but because of social pressure, right? But if you make the choices that are – if you if you make the better choices uh, from the choices that are available, as Ray said, that tends to reduce entropy. And I think it's it's a, it's actually – it's a mind over matter kind of thing, you know, even though they're, they're not separate. They're one of the same thing. Usually kind of like uh, get, getting a good feeling that you did the best you could with what the situation presented – that alone is is kind of enough to block the stress reaction, and and the stress reaction is what's probably the biggest damage. Well, of course, pufa. Like if you load it, if you're eating food that's high on pufa, that will be a separate damage too. But that can be largely controlled and prevented, even if you wait and go home and take vitamin E like hours later. That's still okay, right? So it's mostly your reaction to the to the choices or the lack thereof that the world the world presents to you. 
Um, and over time, you will notice that you will start seeing more and more choices being available to you that you didn't consider before simply because you were stuck in the routine and eating like everybody else does, like a, as, you, as if you're in a herd. Uh, but over time, I think just the your ability to spot opportunities improves mostly because as your energetic ability to produce energy improves, you're more creative and more open to novelty. And I found it, uh, I find it very surprising how I notice foods in a local cafeteria, not the National Geographic, but like a Korean-run buffet, which is notorious for having these like mass-produced foods there, how many more options there were that I wasn't even aware of that well, actually I wasn't seeing that they were there all the time. Like, you know, they have really kind of like pretty decent quality shrimp, but you have to dig under the vegetables and the low main because it's towards the bottom, right? And in my early Peterian days, I wouldn't even look at that container because I thought like, oh my God, that's like starch and proof. That's probably like the worst thing that I can pick up. Yeah, but there was there was good stuff underneath. So yes, I think trusting your intuition and also combining with the fact that you don't want to be too orthorexic helps. So it's uh, you know if you're if you're out there with your friends or your family and everybody wants to enjoy a decent piece of food that's you know not entirely lethal, you'll be uh, you'll be more more uh, you'll be more beneficial for you to go with that and and have a nice. Uh, social interaction with the people that matter to you than, than being an obstinate and saying, you know what, I'm not going to eat this and either sit there like a, you know, like a, like an oak uh, and look awkward or leave the group and try to go find your own food. Like either one of these options are, are, are in my opinion, are more detrimental than, than making, you know, uh, a choice for a less than optimal food, but preserving the, the interaction and the communication with the, with the people that matter to you. I totally agree. I think the uh, I think doing the best in the situation you're in is the the perfect way to look at it. And I yeah. think about that when I'm traveling. And so if I go to Asia or something and it's a 24 hour plane ride, it's like hell. And I'm just trying to do the best I can until I land and I can like go to a grocery store or something. And uh, the only thing I uh, take issue with is that word orthorexic because in the the nutrition community it's t- it tends to be used as if you don't eat what i eat you're orthorexic you're orthorexic yeah, exactly so i hate that so, so i think that's so <laughs> annoying because uh, because it's again like the um there is there's like the bodybuilding crowd that thinks like calories are king and if you just fit eat to fit your macros everything will be okay and they're skeptical about every other type of nutrition and they'll say, well, if you drink a lot of milk, you're orthorexic, you know, or if you eat a carrot every day, you're orthorexic. And I just don't, I, that's not how I think about nutrition, you know? And it's like, I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm just saying that is a dominant point of view that you will encounter of the people that use that word the most frequently. And so for, for what it's worth for me, it's kind of thinking about like, uh, like, food, 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 I should have used food authoritarian, like not, not orthorexia, but like self-imposed food authoritarianism on your own choices. Well, one of the things I liked about reading Ray's stuff is it gave me like a more realistic picture of what was going to happen if you eat something that maybe isn't so great. For example, in with zero carb on the zeroing in on health forum, like that le- the leader, Charles Washington would basically say, if you ate carbohydrate, you would ruin 
the work that you had done for the last six months or a year or two years. Not That's not an exaggeration. And so I, the thing I liked about Ray is like, uh, okay, if I get exposed to some polyunsaturated fat or whatever, I can A, do nothing, B, take an aspirin, C, take some vitamin E or something. And so like you said, it, it, it gave me more control and it made me freak out less because the other ideas I was involved with were exponentially crazier <laughs> and they, they made me feel like a slave to the, the food, the system I was in. Yeah, I think somebody asked Ray twice a similar question and one time he said, I recommend people to simply eat to keep metabolism high than try to over-worry themselves over a particular food, right, or, or a lack thereof. And he said there are many ways to do it and then I have right. a friend that hit him up and he said his diet was wildly different in Mexico than it was in the U.S., and that he was trying to be risk adverse when eating in the U.S. because he thought the food supply was so bad. So, yeah, yeah, it's complicated. So it will depend on the environment, right? I mean, on the choices that you have at the current time. So if you feel like this is good quality food and you can – most of the time you can actually smell it, right? Yeah, I mean, many of these commercial foods that are prepared in a bad setting with, with a lot of PUFA, they, they don't smell very well. They have this like – they also leave a particular – a very particular aftertaste. You know, maybe I've been like avoiding puff for too long, so now I can actually sense it. The same way you can, if you don't wear perfume for a while, like any kind of cologne, mm -hmm. after about a week or two, and let's say you get into an elevator and somebody there is wearing cologne, you can actually gag because <laughs> you become so sensitive. And they, and it's just like even even the like the small amount of cologne that sometimes people put in. Like this is actually a pretty intense smell. I don't know if you've noticed, but when dogs yeah. walk into an elevator with somebody who's wearing cologne, they sometimes sneeze, right? Because their 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 olfactory system is so sensitive, and this is actually a pretty intense smell. So same thing with the with the commercial foods or puffa. After you've if you try, if you, if you've eaten good quality food for a while, after that you actually your taste buds and your smell, uh, your, your 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 sense of smell will be actually be able to pick up most of the time what is what is good quality food and not and you know both smell and taste and they, they go hand in hand genius uh and you know what i think we dodged her question a little bit uh but she was maybe we did touch on it but like the intuition to eat specific foods like do you do you find yourself being like oh mm, if I you want, have a deficiency I, right yeah and like you're, i want craving certain things. or i want liver or, or something like that i think that's one of the most important senses that, that we have developed evolutionary right uh, but, you know, I think in a lot of people, it's actually a little bit uh, suppressed because we've been told this food is good for you. This food is bad for you. Um, so I, I've noticed that in, especially in pregnant women who tend to get these weird cravings, um, I've noticed that the ones who did some blood tests, all of them, without a single exception, uh, w like came back with certain kind of severe deficiency. Now, I haven't confirmed whether the food they were craving actually had that missing nutrient, right? But it makes, I mean, so far it cannot be really a coincidence. Like they had all of them that sent me the results and said, I'm really craving like pickles, right? And, you know, in Peterian, it's like, well, it has a lot of D-lactic acid, the, the D-type, which is supposed to be more toxic than the L-isomer. So I shouldn't be eating them. Yeah, but they also have a lot of manganese. And and some and in pregnancy, you, you actually, you tend to, not tend to, but you're more prone to developing manganese deficiency. Um, so it's these little trace elements that are sometimes I found in these foods that have a very peculiar taste. That's why they have the peculiar taste. Um, I would, I would actually trust my intuition of what I'm craving so far. I've never craved Pufa. 
after, like I said, after you reduce or completely eliminate its intake for about two weeks, you will notice that afterwards most foods will smell rancid to you, the ones that have that are high in PUFA. And it doesn't matter if they're refrigerated because rancidity can happen at almost any temperature above absolute zero. That's how unstable these fats are. So after that, after you've done this, I don't want to call it cleansing because it sounds so new agey and, like, and, and restrictive, but after you've eaten good quality food for a while, I would tend to trust more intuition, more intuition more and more about what I crave. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, I think once you become like better nourished, you can get in, in touch with what you do or don't. Yeah, your judgment will be better and the information that your senses give to you will be better because your senses will not be deranged anymore. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, uh, RR, for that. Appreciate it. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Harrison Ben says, uh, have either of you guys tried the carrot salad? I had it this afternoon. <laughs> yep. I, I actually personally prefer charcoal. Uh, I can't explain why. It just makes me feel better than the carrot salad. I don't avoid a carrot salad. When I, whenever the National Geographic has shredded carrots, and I probably eat it maybe about four, day, four days out of the week, um, but I found that charcoal, even two capsules, and the commercial versions usually have 280 milligrams per capsule, so that's like 560 milligrams. Um, it has a very profound calming effect on the mind, and it's probably due to uh, immediately absorbing endotoxin and serotonin, um, and the only, the closest I've been able to get to that in a stressful situation when I know that it's serotonin and endotoxin is a hefty dose of minocycline um, or cyproheptinine, but it takes time, right? Um, we're talking about quick effects here. The charcoal for me works within five minutes, and the minocycline maybe within 10 to 15. Um, you know, for a cyproheptidine, it's about an hour because it uh, takes time to absorb and it doesn't reach. If you look at the bioavailability statistics, it takes about an hour to reach maximum concentration in the blood. So, yeah, I do have the carrots out, but I personally uh, tend to fare better with charcoal for whatever reason. Sweet. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Harrison, uh, for 50 Canadian dollars. Super generous of you. Thank you. Um, TC for $200. Thank you so much, TC. That is very wow. generous of you. He says, thank you both very much for the videos and for creating a way to donate to Ray. He's stubborn and won't respond when I ask him to let, uh, <laughs> let me send him money directly. <laughs> I think it's a, it's also a liability issue, uh, depending on what, what kind of topics you have discussed with him over email. Um, I've noticed other people have told me the same thing. So in some states, actually, DC is becoming particularly draconian, and I've been starting to tell people that I can't really look at blood results, blood blood work, um, and provide recommendations. So they need to be careful how they word their emails to me. Mm -hmm. DC has law on the books, which Knockenwood so far hasn't been enforced, that if it's a one-on-one -on -one communication, especially over email, which it's hard to be not to be one-on-one, -on -one, it's the epitome of one-on-one of, of, of -on -one communication, and if there's discussion on health matters supported by the use of biomarkers, imaging results, like health history and whatnot, it may be construed as providing unlicensed medical advice mm -hmm. and the state's health authority would be on your case. So, like I said, it hasn't been enforced, but one uh, one of my clients actually sent me the link to the law and alerted me and said, you need to put a disclaimer in your email and, uh, uh, you know, just like you have. But uh, that may be one reason why Ray isn't responding. Like if you, if you have discussed health matters with him and then, and basically you then you send him money I don't know what the law in Oregon is, which 
which is where he is, but it may be construed as him providing and you paying for mm. <laughs> unlicensed medical advice. I have no idea why he does that, but I you, you just have to send him money. <laughs> like you don't you don't ask him. It's like asking a girl out on a date or something. You don't ask them if you can ask them out on a date. Like you just have to send him cash. And since the Ray Pete's uh, newsletter at gmail dot com functions, I just send him money through there. And so I, th- I think he gets uh, like this email is typed like a PayPal account or something, right? I think people oh, like send Ray him Pete's- Ray Pete's newsletter at gmail.com has right. a, has a PayPal for sure. And so, right. and I've talked to him and he says he does get that money that you send him. Okay. Thank you so much, TC. Very generous of you. Appreciate it. Uh, pure therapy, uh, 1999. Thank you so much. Pure therapy. No message here. Uh, I, I thought I saw a question from you in the chat, but maybe not, but thank you so much. Very generous. Kiwi, uh, 888. For five New Zealand dollars, they say, does long-term aspirin use cause hearing loss like uh, other uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? Uh, thank you, Danny and Georgie, loving these podcasts. So I love that question because I've actually researched it myself at length. Uh, there have been maybe at least 100 studies done on that, and it's it, they call it autotoxicity of aspirin of, or, or of NSAIDs in general. So the, these studies showed that uh, basically um, anything over one gram of, asp- of aspirin is a single dosage, but not when split up, right? So if you take one, asp- one aspirin tablet, which is 225 milligrams, if you take one tablet three times daily, it doesn't cause the ringing in the ears. If you take it in one sitting, it, it, it tends to cause ringing in the ears, which they, co- which they call autotoxicity. But anything up to three grams daily, like taken as a single dose in order to cause that ringing, tended to disappear like within 24 hours after stopping that regimen. So in other words, if you took one gram a day or three grams a day for like, let's say, three months or five months or six months, and you were getting this ringing in the ears and you stopped, they said that this ringing subsided within 24 hours it disappeared. It was over three grams a day. Um, and I think they said that the danger zone is around five grams a day where you may get basically in a situation where after you stop the aspirin, the ringing subsides but doesn't disappear, or if it disappears, and then it may come back or it may alternate between left and right ear. Um, actually, I don't think most people are in <laughs> taking aspirin in these dosages. Um, for cancer prevention, Ray said even, like, even uh, one tablet like twice a day is enough. Uh, I'm sorry, not twice a day. Uh, like twice a week, a single tablet twice a week, is enough to reap all the benefits for cancer prevention. And then for people like with more severe conditions, which we legally can't discuss, uh, his regimen that I think is like uh, three to six grams a day. So if you split that up into one, multiple one-gram dosages, this uh, it will probably tend to be uh, like less damaging. And a, a really cool study found out that some of this ringing in the ears were caused was caused by uh, by elevation of of calcium concentrations um, in those in the in the middle ear, and they found out that using vitamin K was actually able to prevent to largely prevent that damage. So there there is a cool experiment to run. Take that dosage of aspirin that caused the ringing in the ears and and add a little bit of vitamin K, five to ten milligrams, and see if it gets resolved. Glycine is also known to oppose many of the 
quote-unquote toxic effects of aspirin. I don't know about ringing in the ears, but in Russia, it's actually an, uh, it's, it's sold as a drug. It's a pharmaceutically approved drug, a combination of, of aspirin and glycine in one-to-one ratio. So um, if you're taking one gram of aspirin, well, that's you know one gram of glycine. You can either take it as a supplement or probably even better if you take a, a teaspoon, not tablespoon, teaspoon of gelatin will have enough glycine and proline and all the other amino acids that were shown to uh, counteract the toxic effects of aspirin. Sweet. Thank you so much, Kiwi888. Sincerely appreciate it. Um, it's like a, a A with two dots on top of it for $5. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. They say, what is the correct dose of ciproheptadine from Idealabs, and should I take anything additional with it? I can discuss human usage for our product, but I can talk about generic cyproheptidine. Um, it really depends on the issue and the condition. Um, usually to block the serotonin receptor noticeably, anything over two milligrams is fine. Like in, in fact, depend, I mean, for many people, one to two milligrams is sufficient to, to get benefits such as improved digestion or like, uh, especially if you have chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, this is actually now this as a new hot field for pharma companies. They're using tryptophan hydroxylase inhibitors to treat chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, but there are older studies uh, for unrelated cases where chronic fatigue was present, such as liver cirrhosis, right? You know, uh, um, people with cystic fibrosis, they also have chronic fatigue. Um, and people with diabetes who also have chronic fatigue. For those people, usually just a regular four milligram dosage of, of cyproheptadine, which is the minimum. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen formulations that come up with doses lower than that per, per dose, per pop, right? So two to four milligrams should be enough to produce an effect. Um, and higher doses, 24 to, 33 to 32 milligrams have only been used, to my knowledge, for something very, for a very severe cases of Cushing syndrome that's not responding to any treatment and it's, it's not a candidate for surgery. So, uh, so, yeah, so I wouldn't, I mean, I would try these low dosages first. For me, so far, the people that have tried them have worked um, and if you have diabetes or like severe depression um, or, you know, learn helplessness or whatever you want to call it or uh, problems with cortisol um, or problems with pancreas function, which has been shown that serotonin is actually the primary cause of that. For all of these things, I that's when I would try the higher doses, but I would try it incrementally. Um, and because it's such a – it causes – it tends to cause very strong sedation in the in the first week, but the good news is it completely wears off in most people after about a week. So I would slowly work up the dosage, or maybe take the four milligrams daily for a week, and then after the sedation wears off, then try the higher doses. The reason I try to sh- I shy away from the higher doses is that cyproheptadine has a number of published case reports of elevating liver enzymes. So even though it has been shown that none of the damage is permanent and quickly. The enzymes quickly return to normal after discontinuing. Several people who've used cyproheptadine have been yelled at by their doctor to the point of the doctor grabbing like the pills from their hand and throwing it in the trash and saying, you're going to like kill your liver with this stuff, so don't take it anymore. So um, don't spook your doctor, but the higher doses of cyproheptadine may cause that. So that's why I'm wary. But if you want to experiment, do the first week for the sedation to wear off and then try the high doses. Sweet. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for that uh, question. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Cardo Chav said for nineteen ninety nine. Thank you so much. Uh, they say struggling with major skin sloughing on my scalp and both sides of my jaw under the beard. A few days of sulfur powder works for about a week. 
then reapplication. Any recommendations? I'm tired of smelling like sulfur all the time. I think of uh, any kind of scalp dandruff or struggling with major. Yeah, the scalp. Like I used to have really thick sebum on my uh, scalp, and that was seemed to be a mixture of thyroid and vitamin A. And of course, they go together of how much vitamin A you can use via your thyroid function. But it was like I could scrape it off with my finger. It was real gross. Yeah, my experience is also zinc deficiency is sometimes also involved as maybe vitamin B6. Um, I've received reports from multiple people using, you know, it's they don't, they're not always present at the same time. So it could be one of these things. And also intestinal irritation, irritation can cause can cause these things, especially on the scalp. Um, so, you know, sometimes, you know, like trying the charcoal or like the cyproheptadine or the carrot salad. Um, or liver, if in case there there is a deficiency of vitamin or mineral, usually liver is a pretty good way to 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 uh, take care of that. Um, and if liver doesn't help, and it, if you know, if in case it's a zinc deficiency, liver doesn't have that much zinc in it. Oysters would be or shrimp, I think, would be the next the next choices. Yeah, and I, for what it's worth, occasionally I've done like over like overdone the liver or overdone the oysters to see if if those would influence things in any positive way if I really couldn't get uh, figure out what was going on. So I know for myself, there were times where I thought I was eating enough liver, like once a week, maybe six or eight ounces, when in reality, I needed more. And so that wasn't really obvious to me, uh, unless I had kind of done a dumb experiment of eating it like every day, basically. Um, Thank you so much for that, Kardochev. Very generous. Um, Michael says, can thymus extract glandular be effective for immune support? Uh, I think there's some very good research on that. Um, mostly coming out of Russian countries, uh, the former Russian republics and, or the Soviet union, uh, back in like in the, in the, uh, you know, before the 1990s and also some, uh, some good studies coming out of, uh, India, Brazil and Pakistan. I don't know why these countries specifically, but, um, I guess organ, uh, consumption, like uh, organ meat consumption there is high. So there's a lot of research going on with that too. Um, there are products on the market that have even extracted the thymus peptides and they're available for like for injection. Those I think could be dangerous. They can trigger a pretty nasty immune reaction. And to my knowledge, there is no product so far that has been approved in the United States that basically takes the thymus, the, thym- the thymic peptide by injection. So Orally, especially if it's a naturally desiccated thymus, thymus gland, I think it can work wonders, especially for somebody who's, who's, uh, who suffers from like chronically elevated cortisol, people with type 2 diabetes, right? Uh, insulin, insulin resistance, all of these are just euphemisms for elevated cortisol and or, estro- and or estrogen. Um, and in my experience, uh, I haven't used the thymus gland, but I've used the desiccated liver and the kidneys. They actually tend to synergize. So, so lower doses of more than one glandular extract when combined tends to do a lot better than using a higher dosage of just one of them. And uh, from what I'm hearing, basically thymus tends to go pretty well with liver. So if you can get these two extracts, that's what I would try. Also thymus and thyroid. Uh, T3, uh, even endocrinologists that I've talked to don't know about this. T3 is the most endogenous, most the most potent endogenous thymo trophic chemical more potent than even progesterone so there's something about t3 that works not only by opposing cortisol which is what progesterone does but there apparently there's some other mechanisms and t3 
uh, was known up until the the 1950s as the most potent endogenous thymus anabolic agent. So that would be another thing to consider. So hence why maybe th- combining thyroid gland with thymus gland would be would be the uh, ultimate th- thymus supplement. Sweet. Thank you so much, Michael, for $5. Sincerely appreciate it. Julia for $5 says, best suggestions for agoraphobia slash panic. And she says, brewer's yeast question mark. And then thoughts on cephalexin, uh, cephalexin antibiotic. So the agoraphobia, um, I saw some studies, and I think at this point it's been pretty definitive. Well, in, in our circles, it's pretty, pretty, pretty obviously tied to serotonin. And agoraphobia, I think it's the fear of open spaces. It's actually a, a, like a type of fear of novelty because open spaces tend to have more objects in them. And people that are afraid of open spaces usually tend to have uh, elevated serotonin. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah. So that's my experience. I One one of my uh, clients reported that uh, they used on Dancitron in lower doses, one to two milligrams daily. Apparently, it fixed their, their agoraphobia. Um, and what was the other question? Uh, thoughts on the antibiotic uh, cephalexin? Yeah, I think those tend to be kidney toxic. I mean, it's a pretty powerful and broad spectrum antibiotic. But uh, if there was a, you know, if if there was an option other than that one that's available, I would. So the the least dangerous ones are penicillin group. The second least dangerous is the tetracycline group. The third least dangerous, in my opinion, is the clarithromycin, azithromycin. I think they're called the macrolides, right? Um, and then the the fourth more least dangerous is the antibiotics from the neomycin group, and then well, fifth that's, that's and sixth. Oh, macrolide. I'm sorry. Yeah, and then fifth and sixth will be like the quinolides, um, and 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 the and the groups of, of the cephalosporin. Sweet. Thank you so much, Julia. Uh, intelligent evolution. We only have a few more. Intelligent evolution for ten dollars says. Can you guys talk about opiate addiction and damaging bioenergetic effects of lasting? Lasting long after cessation, uh, cessation is that cessation? I think that's what you said. <laughs> Including prolactin, serotonin, etc. Yeah. What are good strategies for proper treatment? So opioids, and he already mentioned, he or she already uh, has probably read up on the subject, but uh, they're one of the most potent inducers of prolactin release uh, and also of cortisol. Um, so chronic use of, of opioids. Uh, because of the elevation of, of these two of these two uh, hormones, really tends to mess up metabolism, and more importantly, uh, at least in males, it can it can damage the liver, uh, and it can cause not only hypogonadism in males, but something called testicular feminization syndrome, um, and it's basically for somehow it prevents the gonads from producing sufficient testosterone, so people males who overuse opioids or use them on the long term. They tend to get pretty, um, pretty drastically feminized. So as far as the withdrawal from it, most of the withdrawal sh- sim- symptoms are driven by adrenaline and serotonin. Unsurprisingly, the anti-adrenaline drug clonidine at this point is actually, um, you know, the, one of the main treatments in addiction clinics during the acute period of withdrawal. Um, and a, a clonidine not only blocks adrenaline but also lowers ACTH, which also automatically means it's going to uh, reduce the, the, the levels of cortisol as well. So a combination of, of an anti-serotonin like cyproheptanin or ondansetron and clonidin would probably be the best way to either wean off of 
or you know help through the recovery um, and reduce reduce the withdrawal symptoms. But ultimately, opioid use, just like alcohol use, any any kind of an abuse of a uh, depressive uh, chemical that acts as a depressant on the central nervous system is ultimately driven by elevated stress hormones. But, uh, I'm sure you've seen the studies, multiple studies I've posted. That's why the, the rats in the rat park experiment were self-administering morphine. They, their cortisol was sky high. And as soon as they were let out of their cages and allowed to run freely and given access to you know everything that, they, that a rat wants, their cortisol went down and they didn't feel the the basically the need to uh, to 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 uh, sedate themselves because cortisol I mean people with elevated cortisol the experience is is pretty nasty you feel agitated all the time it's like you want to crawl out of your skin so it's not a pleasant feeling and many people will do just about anything to to get rid of it or at the very least numb it and that's what opioids do they just kind of like shut you off from even from realization of your uh, of what's going on in your own body. Thank you so much for that intelligent evolution. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Chris Gatton for $6.03. Thank you so much, Chris. He says, can you suggest foods for getting 100 to 150 grams of protein per day in addition to milk, organ meats, cheese, potatoes, gelatin, and mushrooms? Thanks. Um, I personally like smoked oysters. They're, they sell them in uh, uh, marinated olive oil. Um, I like shrimp. I think shrimp is great because in addition to the high quality protein, it also has a pretty high amount of cholesterol. Um, I didn't see that list eggs being mentioned. Like if you can find eggs and I actually, um, I have a powdered organic powdered egg yolks, which I put in my children's milk and it makes for a, for a pretty, pretty, pretty amazing shake, you know, and uh, they love the taste. And I now I've noticed that when I give them the milk without it, when I add the, the eggs, to me, it doesn't change the, ta- the taste very much. But apparently, children are very sensitive, or they sense there is a different effect. But now, when I give them pure milk, they don't like it as much. They want me to keep adding the egg. Um, and I've also tested this on animals too. Puppies would also uh, prefer to like lick milk mixed with the egg yolk versus pure milk. So there's, um, you know, that's. I think eggs is a pretty pretty good protein. If possible, I would try to get rid of the egg the egg whites. Not only are they very they're relatively rich in tryptophan, but they also contain a chemical that binds and deactivates the vitamin biotin. So you can get a biotin deficiency if you eat, let's say, you know, more than four eggs daily. Uh, and some people do. Some people like eggs and they they make it the, the main source of protein um, based on that. Maybe based on a recent study which showed that cholesterol is anabolic. So one of the best ways to get cholesterol is from the eggs. Um, and there was this old-time bodybuilder who said that uh, eating one to two dozens of eggs daily is indistinguishable from using anabolic steroids because he, he grew up and competed at a time where steroids weren't available. Yet he still was pretty bulky. We talked about him last time. Vince Garanda yeah. is that. Yeah, Garanda, exactly. He, yeah. Had, he had some other interesting food choices. I think he had milk. Uh, as well. Yes, uh, exactly. The, besides eggs and oysters, like just ruminant and shrimp, ru- oh, and shrimp and gra- uh, ruminant ground meat, uh, I think is a good protein. Actually, chocolate is actually if you get if you get good quality cocoa powder, uh, chocolate is actually contains a, uh, like a, some kind of a special um, uh, combination of peptides, uh, the protein in, in cocoa, which which is more anabolic than than uh, the other proteins that we typically consume. Um, and it's got uh, it's got a lot of stearic acid, 
Um, it's got a lot of it's it has it has theobromine, which is a, 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 mo- a molecule related to caffeine. So you can get organic cocoa powder, and actually you can use it to bulk up your protein intake. Um, and you can get, I think at this point, you can get defatted cocoa powder, which means that you'll be mostly protein and theobromine and some of the minerals that are found in cocoa. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Nikki Martz for nineteen ninety nine. Thank you so much, Nikki. She says, any advice for someone with a low TSH and free T3 and T4 levels that are always beneath the range? I've tried multiple thyroid uh, medications, feel great for one to two weeks, and then end up with massively high heart rate and adrenaline symptoms. So the, the, the TSH, so basically both TSH and T3 and T4 are low. So I think so, yeah. Free, yeah, free that's, T3 and free T4. I, okay. I, would, I don't want to speak for you, but I would need more in, information. I don't think that this is like enough, like what's the cholesterol level and the Right, and the steroids, there is different steroids like lactic acid and CO2. I will try to test that, vitamin D. So you, you want to see whether the, the basically the uh, – so whenever there is an actual hypothyroidism, the steroid cascade will be one of the first that is affected, right? Cholesterol will jump up. Cortisol will be elevated. DHA will be low. Testosterone will be low, things like that. Vitamin D will be low. But, um, you know, if, if, if uh, metabolism is seems to be fairly okay – then low TSH can sometimes be caused by a pituitary disorder. And that's if you go to an endocrinologist and he or she sees low TSH with low thyroid hormones being produced, one of the first things they will do is like try to try to assess pituitary function. Okay, but the she's saying that she's taking T, uh, T3, she's taking a comment. Yeah, we don't we don't know what she's taking or the dose. And so okay. the, the product and then the dose too would be important. And just because the TSH is low, if you took two or three grains at one time, that could cause those massively high heart rate. So it would depend on a lot of different things, I think. So Nikki, if you want to comment, you don't have to do another super chat. If you want to clarify the situation a bit, we'll be happy to riff on it. Uh, TSH drops pretty easily. I mean, you can get actually, you can take even uh, 10 milligrams of pure T4 and most most doctors prescribe T4 only, right? So you can, and they the reason they do is they want they want to see your TSH drop. So you can actually drop your TSH pretty reliably, yeah. but by taking even low doses of T4, yeah. yet your metabolism will be in the drain. Yeah. Not only because that dose is is low enough to not be able to really like give you like the pick me up, but also because it won't get converted to T3, and may even can get converted to reverse T3 and, and make the situation even worse. So, yeah, so uh, I wouldn't trust TSH on its own. There has to be, you know, a lot more tested. 100%. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, Let us know if there's more info. Steph, for $31.41. Thank you so much, Steph. You rule. Uh, Project Stackhouse for Canadian, $10. They say, can you discuss the mainstream's recommendation of avoiding calcium at the same time or in close proximity to taking your thyroid? Synthetic or NDT, it seems. Love your guys and the new platform. Thanks for that. What do you think? I haven't I haven't seen any kind of warnings they'll about say that. In the literature of the synthetics or the um, some of the natural products, they'll say do not. Sometimes they'll say avoid taking it with food, and other times they'll say specifically don't take it with calcium. And I think they even say it might bind with T4 specifically. But it, I think that's actually not the worst thing in 
the world, you know. The only, I mean, I, I the, the, the part that, that I can think of is depending on the thyroid dosage you're taking, I've actually experienced this myself. I took two grams of calcium and one grain of thyroid, and it made me so hot. <laughs> I actually had to stick my uh, arm in the freezer and sit there because I was sweating so profusely. I was feeling so hot. I mean, you could tell there was a, a lot of CO2 because I was breathing very deeply and was feeling very oxygenated, but it wasn't a pleasant feeling. Yet the two grams of calcium by itself and the one grain thyroid didn't give, I mean, still raised my temperature, but didn't make it as uncomfortable. Um, there's an old trick that high schoolers use in Bulgaria and many Eastern European countries is if you want to get a sick day leave and you want the doctor to excuse you from attending school, you basically go and you eat half a stick of chalk. And <laughs> chalk is actually calcium carbonate, pure calcium carbonate. What it, what it does pretty reliably is jacks up your temperature, right? Uh, because it's so, so, so highly pro-metabolic. And you, and you, go, to, you go to the doctor with a fever of, like, of around 103. Given that both thyroid and calcium raise the temperature so effectively, maybe that's one of the one of the reasons they're warning against against using both of them at the same time. Yeah, I think the say these things are exclusively say they're accurate. I think they're just negligible in the the grand scheme of things because again, if you're going to be doing something possibly for life, like it's just more convenient to use it with food. And then the alternative of that, if I don't know about you, but if I just take 10 micrograms of T3, like that will, uh, I won't feel great doing that. Right. And so I'm really in line with Ray's idea of slowing down the T3 and T4. And so I'll always take it after a meal. And uh, so I get a real specific feeling when just taking it on an empty stomach and it kind of feels like hy hypoglycemia a little bit. And yeah. so I, I think even if, even if the pamphlets or whatever are completely correct, I still, uh, well, at least I definitely wouldn't take it on an empty stomach. And it just so happens most of my meals or food contains calcium. And so that just like uh, wouldn't be very reasonable to try to split it up. And so one other, one other reason I can think of is if the thyroid is actually a natural desiccated thyroid type, uh, the glandular thyroid contains a, a protein called calcitonin. And the role of calcitonin is binding and basically deactivating calcium or like at least getting it out of the blood. So maybe that's another reason. It basically, they, they think that it will, it will prevent most of the calcium from being absorbed or the calcium will bind the calcitonin and you won't be able to get that calcitonin in your blood and you won't experience the benefit. Sweet. Uh, thank you so much for that, Project Stackhouse. Appreciate it. Uh, Cardo Chow says Sebum. Uh, yep, that was the word I was looking for. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Thank you for that, Cardo Chow. Kirk333 for $5. Thank you so much, uh, Kirk. He says, can you talk about the long-term uh, – and we only have a few more. He says, can you talk about the long-term risks of Adderall? Are there any pro-thyroid qualities? Is Ritalin better? Um, all, of, all of the amphetamine drugs over time, uh, they, they – Initially, the effect, the effect is dopaminergic, but over time, they actually tend to also decrease the turnover of serotonin. So over time, you're getting a buildup of both, and there really is no telling which one is going to, to dominate. Um, the second bad thing that, that I don't like, though is, I, should, I shouldn't call it bad, the second thing that I don't like about amphetamines is that they tend to decrease the expression of the dopamine receptors so that you can get into a situation where if you stop it, right, 
then basically the uh, the amount of dopamine you're producing endogenously it won't be sufficient. So you get into this almost like a um, like a dopamine functional dopamine deficiency. It's called uh, there's a special name for it. It's called DAWS, dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome, and that's what happens by either taking a high dosage of dopamine agonists or elevating uh, your endogenous dopamine chronically. The receptors get downregulated, so you become less sensitive to it. And if you take by accident a lower dose or you skip a dose, you're going to feel pretty damn zombified. It's not a pleasant uh, situation to to be in this functional dopamine deficiency state. You might even get something called uh, malignant hyperthermia, which will stem from the relative dopamine deficiency and the relative serotonin excess. So that's why I don't like the the amphetamine-based drugs. Uh, I think somebody asked Ray the same question. He said, I think cocaine will be safer. (laughs) Not that I'm encouraging using illegal drugs, but uh, I think the health-wise, the amphetamines are probably one of the least safe drugs that that are out there. Yeah, I don't have any direct experience with any other type of drug user other than a close friend who basically got addicted to Adderall, and he was like a completely different person. Uh, And it it was like shocking to me. Uh, he was so reliable. He became like the most unreliable person. His whole business folded. Like it was like the worst. He got divorced. It was like the wow. worst situation I've ever seen. And that I really attribute it completely to Adderall. So I haven't really studied it, but I'm like extremely prejudiced against it because of that experience. To add to fully answer the question, I, yes, I have heard better reports with Ritalin. And actually, even better reports with another drug called Provigil. Uh, and it's slightly different. I, I don't think it's in the amphetamine class, but it was developed to basically keep pilots, uh, military pilots awake on very long missions, spending up to 90 hours. Um, and you, it's typically used for narcolepsy, but a lot of people are uh, have found that it produces similar effects to Adderall when it comes to cognitive function and, you know, cramming up for exams or, you know, performing well on interviews and whatnot. Sweet. Uh, but again, like t- those would be cover from, from a possible more basic problem. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, do- actually, it's been shown that one of the first things that declines during hypothyroidism is the synthesis of dopamine. Um, and first of all, in order to produce dopamine, you need a couple of things. You need thyroid, you need the amino acid tyrosine, and you need your retina to be exposed to light. So if any of these things is 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 not in sufficient quantity, um, you you won't be producing sufficient dopamine. And when that happens, serotonin levels automatically rise, and serotonin actually happens to be an inhibitor of that enzyme tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the limiting limiting step for synthesizing dopamine. So yes, if you feel the need to take Adderall, um, I, I think the the it's pretty guaranteed that will be. Um, there will be some problem with thyroid function because just like cholesterol rises in hypothyroidism, same thing happens with dopamine, but it drops pretty reliably. Sweet. Okay. Thank you, uh, Kirk, uh, so much for that. Uh, Molly Blue for $20. No. Oh, Kirk has another one for $10. Thank you so much, Kirk. He says, there is a lot of advertising for CBD oil. Are there any benefits? In addition, can you talk about the long-term risk of smoking marijuana and whether it has uh, similar effects as CBD oil? Well, I think the main effects from CBD come from activating that CBD receptor um, in the brain. And that's like you can get the same effects but much more safely 
by using either anandamide or the uh, amide of the oleic acid, o o oleamide. So both of these are uh, activators of the receptor, and I think they're safer than CBD oil. I don't like most of marijuana products because they, they tend to elevate serotonin, and they also tend to block the androgen receptor. They're pretty known as actually as they're pretty well known as endocrine disruptors, uh, just not as potent and not as long lasting as something like bisphenol A, BPA, uh, but still they're in that group. Um, and I know it's not a popular topic because many people like the you know the uh, to smoke marijuana, uh, but ac acutely it probably has good effects because as that uh, recent study showed, marijuana increases the production of pregnenolone in the brain. And apparently it's because pregnenolone blocks the receptor that cannabidiol activates. So pregnenolone would be a good way to, would be a good thing to try for getting, for getting, um, for stopping marijuana if you want to stop smoking it. Um, but in terms of getting the same effects of marijuana with less risks, I think an endamide and a laomide would be, would be safer. <laughs> we keep getting super <laughs> Okay, we're gonna we have to we're gonna, like, cut slow, it at some point. Slow down here because I'm getting pretty tired, and I'm sure Jordan yeah. is way more tired from actually answering these questions. Um, okay, Molly Blue for oh, thank you, Kirk. Sincerely appreciate it. Did we get we got to the CBD oil and the marijuana? Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Kirk. Uh, Molly Blue for twenty dollars and no message. Thank you so much, Molly. Uh, Intelligent Evolution for five dollars says, "Why does androsterone raise my temperature so much? Can you discuss its effects?" Uh, yes, an old study found that 5-alpha uh, uh, reduced androgens, especially androsterone, uh, ha has a pro-thyroid effect and has been well known, most endocrinologists won't deny it, androgens increase the conversion of T4 into T3 in peripheral tissues. So typically, the main organ that does this is the liver, right? So your thyroid gland produces mostly T4 and a little bit of T3 in a ratio of about 4 to 1 up to 5 to 1. So the, main, so the main product of the thyroid gland is T4, which by itself is mostly inactive. So, the way, so what you want is a lot of this T4 to convert to T3. Um, and it has been found that one way, of course, is to have healthy liver. But many people struggle with something called peripheral thyroid resistance. And it has been shown to be due to two things. One, either blockade of the thyroid receptor in the cell by, by fatty acids. PUFA is actually one of the most potent ones to block, to prevent, first, to first of all, prevent T3 from binding with receptor. And even if it's already bound, to increase, to speed up its dissociation with the receptor. If that is not the case, the second known cause of peripheral thyroid resistance is insufficient conversion of T4 into T3 in peripheral tissues. And it's precisely what the strong energies were found to do. Increase that conversion, expedite it by about four to five fold. So... That is the main proposed mechanism of action of androsterone's metabolic effects. Second one is because androsterone was found to uh, inhibit aromatase, uh, basically anything that, that lowers the, the, the synthesis of estrogen is bound to increase oxidative phosphorylation. There are very few things like estrogen that really put the brakes um, on, on the, both the oxidation of glucose and the overall speed of the oxidative metabolism. So that's another thing. Androsterone, just like DHT and some of the other 5-alpha reduced steroids, was found to be a potent inhibitor of aromatase. Sweet. Okay. And last one is Nikki uh, Martz clarifies. She says, Danny, these are my labs when not on any thyroid uh, meds. She says, low TSH, low T3, low T4, 
When I supplement even a fourth of a grain, TSH drops to zero. T3 and T4 labs will raise, but the side effects are unbearable. Uh, so like you said, I think just having low TSH in general, because uh, I've talked to several people with this issue, they, their adrenaline is usually like super high. Very high. And yeah. then if if taking any thyroid, even T3 alone causes problems, I would guess that there could be some kind of deficiency like vitamin D or something else. And then the other interesting thing would be the cholesterol level because sometimes somebody will supplement with thyroid, but their cholesterol will be very low. And that's like a problem in and of itself because it will just lower the cholesterol even more. Even more. Yeah, exactly. What is your thinking? Um, So it could be also like a low glycogen story, the liver. People with sluggish liver or other kinds of liver disease, they they struggle with supplementing with thyroid simply because – um, there's not enough like fuel basically in the in the storage facility, which is mostly the liver, to couple to um, to cope with the increased energetic demand. Um, other things that I've noticed is that people with again elevated free fatty acids they they tend to not react well to thyroid um, because when the thyroid is not able to bind to the receptor or or you know or um, stay associated with for long enough, then the body treats this as an excess of thyroid in the blood and activates the deiodinase enzymes to basically get rid of T2 and convert into T2 or T1. Um, and then it also activates the enzyme that converts T4 into reverse T3. So if thyroid is not being able to get inside the cell and do what it's supposed to do, any excess will be either quickly, any excess of T3 will be quickly deactivated to a lot less active T2 and T1. And any excess of T4 will get converted to reverse T3 and make the situation worse. So I will try to take with niacinamide or aspirin and see if, see, see if that improves um, anything and you know try to take it with a little bit of orange juice in case there's a glycogen issue, like a liver issue. Sweet. $459 that I will send to <laughs> Ray and Pete. So that is insane. Um, Rosalind76. I I, oh, uh, Molly Blue for another $20. Thank you so much, Molly. Um, awesome. You guys... Please no more super chats. <laughs> so try to uh, wind things down here, uh, Georgie. Any passing? Because we will not, unless I get a new computer very quickly. We will be gone for about two months, you know. And I, I am like ecstatic with how things have gone. It was, it was. I felt like it was risky moving to YouTube because if you guys don't know, Georgie and I and I had been doing these solo on Patreon, and there was a platform called Crowdcast that we would get on and we would do it for patrons. And when I would have Georgie on, <laughs> understandably so, a lot more people would come. And the the episodes where Georgie would join me were so much more fun and there were so many more people. And so eventually when I got into watching live streams on YouTube, I thought they were kind of exhilarating. I thought they were very fun. And so I was like, why am I trying to hide behind a, basically a arbitrary $1 paywall when I think we ha- really have something good here, and I think we could uh, go in mass to uh, a bigger crowd and and kind of do something. Uh, they say, see Molly Blue's question in the comments. Um, Molly Blue, can you post it again? I don't I don't know where that is, and it, it might take me too long to to find it. Okay, uh, Molly, yeah, or somebody could post it for me. 
Anyways, sincere appreciation to Georgie. You know, uh, we're not going anywhere. We don't want to stop. We want to continue doing these and, and they're very fun and equally beneficial for both of us. And so I, I want to continue doing them. Uh, but really, Georgie is a star of the show. So I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to join me to do these. And I wouldn't want to do them without you. So I sincerely appreciate it. And your parting words for possibly two months, uh, Georgie. <laughs> Well, we have a chance of like breaking one of the biggest uh, myths in medicine, <laughs> and you know, uh, let's see what happens with these two studies that I'm running. But uh, uh, I'm pretty optimistic about how how things. Well, I shouldn't say optimistic. I I think we have found that with with sufficient effort and, and enthusiasm, there is no problem that can resist uh, you know the the combined efforts of the community. So uh, I maybe so aside from the new product. Um, if there is interest in funding some of some additional studies that it, that question has been raised, uh, I will post a separate thread about this on the forum and on my blog. Uh, maybe about ten people have sent me emails saying, "Hey, we want to we want to do the studies ourselves. Like, uh, can we chip in and help you fund them?" So um, we'll see how the first two studies go. I like that idea, but I would like to take the risk first and see how the first two studies go. And if I like the results, then we can maybe set up like a community-funded project or something where people can vote on what to test, right? Maybe like an EFA-deficient diet, right? Or maybe testing aspirin for cancer or for multiple sclerosis or for diabetes or whatnot. So all of these are really exciting topics, but uh, I, for the people that are out there asking me these questions, I want to do the first, the, the first two studies myself, prove that these groups do work, right? And if, if things don't go bad, it will be on my dime and not on the community. I don't want to the to the uh, I don't know, I don't want to I don't want to feel like I'm defrauding people uh, with their hard-earned money. So uh, you know there will be there will be opportunities for that as well. Other than that, what was that? Keep stress fun and uh, no, keep fun, fun high and stress, stress. down. <laughs> I, I would slightly rephrase this: keep meaningful activity high and routine down. I think that's. To me, so far, has been more important than seeking necessarily to always be fun. Uh, genius. I'm just waiting a, a second here for Molly because the, the Molly uh, super chat like forty dollars, so I don't want to skip their question. But I, I scroll through the chat and I don't see anything. Can you do Control F and look for Molly and see what what it comes yeah, up? Yeah, I, I I looked for I saw one thing, but it just wasn't a question. So Molly, if you're listening to this, please submit a question before we bail here um or email me worst case scenario if we like disconnect send it to me yeah thank you for reminding me i frequently get people saying how can i contact georgie and so do you want to uh riff on that for a second so i prefer like because of that law in dc that i mentioned uh i prefer that we don't directly discuss health matters over email so uh one of the ways to protect against this is to post it on the forum where it's considered a public discussion right so if more than one person chimes in and I also chime in, it's no longer considered unlicensed medical advice because it's many people discussing a health problem, right? Um, so that would be the best way. If it's a really that big of a problem and the person is embarrassed or doesn't want to post on the forum, then uh, they can send me email. I mean, uh, uh, my email is heydut, H-A-I-D-U-T at gmail.com. And then you have a Twitter, which I have up here. So it's twitter.com slash hate it. And you can, of course, interact with you on there. Like, do people send you messages on like at, 
hate it reply to you? Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, yeah they do. It's it's not. I mean, I thought it'll be. It's, mo- it's mostly so far. It's mostly been like likes and retweets. But the, uh, several people have actually sent messages on Twitter, and I check it like all the time. So, so that's probably the the most real time way to contact me would be to, through Twitter because I get the updates in real time. Email and I check it several times daily, but I'm not glued to the screen all the time. So uh, twitter.com slash hate it. Idealabsdc.com is Georgie's supplement company. So I'm scrolling through here, his many uh, products and working on many more and uh, things. You can follow me on Twitter or tweet me. And then I do one-to-one coaching and I've kind of renovated this page here. And so it's more usable. And uh, so I, this was a motivation, not only for my coaching gig, but just to put all the resources here that a person could maybe skim through that uh, might make things a little less confusing. So that is that. Uh, anything else, Georgie? <laughs> I mean, if, if there's anything else that I come up with, release a product or a study, I will post on my blog and Twitter. So I will keep the community informed. Um, and uh, hopefully you buy a computer soon and <laughs> we, we we don't completely drop off the face of the earth for two months. Yeah, it's extremely possible that I will have a computer by the end of October slash the beginning of November. So we'll just cross our fingers. And then I, I'm super likely to do a uh, live stream tomorrow with Nick, and that will be kind of that. So again, thank you guys from the bottoms uh, bottom of my heart. Sincerely appreciate appreciate you guys listening, watching, liking, subscribing, commenting. We, I just, we have a, an amazing viewership. Thank you, Steph, for being uh, a chronic, excellent moderator. <laughs> and and from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Georgie, for making these shows what they are. Uh, and that will be that. Thank you, guys. Um, okay, we finally got Molly's question. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Molly says, I feel like I'm suffocating, like the body isn't taking in oxygen. Please help uh, some blood work. Um, I think lactic acid is one of the most likely culprits. I experienced this thing myself when my cortisol and lactic acid were through the roof, and I by accident found that even a low dose of methylene blue, like a one, two milligrams, like within minutes, completely got rid of this. Um, and uh, niacinamide also helped, but I had to take several grams. So between niacinamide and methylene blue, I'll try the methylene blue first. So the, in terms of tests, just a regular CO2 test, um, they also can do something called um, an anion gap uh, analysis, and that basically shows if there's any kind of acidosis going on. Um, so that's a pretty standard test. If you get the basic metabolic panel, that's one of the tests that they do. And if it's over 20, it's a problem. But depends on the range. Like different labs, you have different ranges. My lab was 20 and above was actually a problem. Like it needed to be uh, addressed by a doctor. Sweet. Thank you for that, Kristen. Sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you guys soon, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, Take care and have a great week. End. Thank you, everybody.